your ride ready for spring driving with Dobbs Spring Break Deals. Money saver deals you can use on Goodyear, Pirelli, Cooper, Michelin, and General Tires. Expert auto service, too. Click on GoToDobbs.com for spring break deals now. For over two decades, E&B Granite has been St. Louis's trusted name for kitchen, bathroom, and outdoor space renovations that are guaranteed to bring new life into your living spaces. Their skilled team will provide you with personalized customer service, fast turnaround times, and prices you won't find with big box stores. Support local and schedule free consultation at enbgranite.com or call them at 314-645-9300 or better yet, stop by the showroom and explore their massive inventory. Again, that's enbgranite.com. Time now for the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. I think right now is we understand that there there are options out there. Um, how we decide to to deploy our resources is still something that we're we're working through, and you know having players like Tommy Edmond definitely give you flexibility because we know they can he can play other positions. But you know one of the things you have to understand is when you when you move him off of short and where do you move him to, and when you some people throw out the outfield, I mean then are you really changing your offensive? profile and the answer is probably not and so you know ultimately those are the things that we have to internally decide and as I mentioned earlier, good news is we have a little time to think through that. Well, they're getting to have a little less time. That was John Mozeliak right at the end of the season talking about what the offseason is going to look like with Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendricks and I'm Brandon Kylie. It's time for our favorite topic. Are the oh, Cardinals yeah? going to sign a shortstop this time around here on BK and Ferrario? Oh, we already answered that. Oh, got what? a bit of an update yesterday from Ken Rosenthal of The Athletic. You guys ready? You guys ready for this? It was just Y-E-S in all caps with an exclamation point. Ken never reports bad news. True. Again, this is from Ken Rosenthal in The Athletic. Quote, Cardinals GM John Mosellock. He's the president of baseball operations, sir. You get that right. In a telephone conversation Tuesday, made it clear the team's number one priority is acquiring an everyday catcher. When asked about the possibility of adding a shortstop, Mosellock said... Yes. Tommy Edmond is a very, very good shortstop. End quote. Son of a biscuit eater. Good person, too. Really? That's what we're going with? Very, very good? I mean, he is. Cool. He's not wrong. I was the president of the Tommy Edmond to shortstop fan club when you didn't have one of the shortstops that was available to you via free agency and not wanting to have Paul DeYoung at that position. But now... You got all these guys in front of you. There's better than very, very good. It's very, 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 very good available to you. That's two more varies. Some would say generational. Well, no, let's not someone, get too far here. Some would just say great. Yeah. Then you have to be very good. Well, I guess Moe's looking at it as, well, they got very good in Mason Wynn and very, very good in Tommy Edmond. That combines for three varies. And, well, that's Xander Bogart. Here's the thing. None of this is surprising. Like, this is what we kind of expected Speak it to be. Yourself. The Cardinals looked around. They dipped their toe in the water. So, water's a little cold over there. I'm not jumping in this. I'm not sure I'm ready for all that. He said, you said how much money, sir? And on how many years? Yeah, call- we're good. You called yourself Gucci? Oh, yeah, no, sorry. <laughs> yeah. We can't afford this. Wasn't it Prado? 
Prado. No, Martin Prado's retired. Prado, what, what is it? Stolci and Gabbana. <laughs> no, Gucci. what did he compare himself to? I don't even know what we're talking about anymore. Ca- Carlos Correa it was compared Boris. himself. It was Scott Boris called himself. I thought he called himself Gucci. I can't remember. You know, like it's all Gucci. Carlos Correa. That's what the kids say these days. No wonder why we're out on him. Yeah, I'm hit. Flash. I don't remember which kind of bag it was. It was one of them. It was the air comfort service. What bag was Carlos Correa? Bag was Carlos Correa. Please, please send that in on the text line. We're good with Coach from the mall. It's fine. Yeah, we'll get the off brand. Yeah, we're we're gonna not Dolce and Cabana. Yeah. So Cabana Dior. That's what it was. It was a Dior bag that Carlos Correa compared himself to. Door bag. I have no issue. Here's the thing. I don't even necessarily have a problem with the Cardinals going with Tommy Edmond. It is not inherently a bad decision to have him as your starting shortstop next year. Tommy Edmond is a really good player. I actually totally agree with John Mosellock on that. Where I come to a crossroads is what's available to you this offseason. You look at the market. All right, where could we improve our club the most? And when I personally view it, I see the shortstops shouting from the mountaintops, screaming, we are the best case scenario for you this offseason. Now, is it going to cost a lot of money? Absolutely. Would I be willing to pay it? Because I think that that is the type of market that I would want to spend money on. Yeah, because you've got guys that can completely change your club. I would go Xander Bogarts, taking into account what the money is, the position that he plays, what you have internally, where if he ends up not being a long-term shortstop, he could move over to second, he could be a DH later in his career, and you probably feel good about that. And instead of a 10-year deal, you're likely getting him on a six-year deal. That's the route that I would go. I don't necessarily think this is a huge problem for them, but I would like to see them go get the shortstop, Alex. But this seems to confirm that they're not going to. I'm in the same spot as you. Again, I was the president of the Tommy Edmond, the shortstop fan club last season. He is a very, very good shortstop. John Mazalak is not wrong there, but I need as much as I need defense at that position. I need another bat and Tommy Edmond's bat does not equal Xander Bogart's Trey Turner, Carlos Correa. They don't, they don't match there. So I would be fine if you told me Tommy Edmond was playing shortstop. But follow-up question, John, if you don't mind, where's your offense coming from? Because that is still the major issue. If you want Tommy Edmond at short and Brendan Donovan at second, heck, enjoy your little heart out this offseason because they'll be fine. But go get me a bat somewhere else because otherwise this offense is going to be the exact same as it was last season. And Tommy Edmond played well for you at shortstop, but you still had a problem scoring runs. Yeah, and that's where I fall on it is, okay, well, if you're not going to be on the shortstop off or the shortstop market, how are you going to augment the offense and protect Goldie and Arenado? Because... When I look at Sean Murphy and Alejandro Kirk, yes, that's an improvement at the catcher position, which you didn't have last year. But those guys don't scream, hey, we're going to protect Goldie Arnado by hitting Murphy or Alejandro Kirk behind them. Wilson Contreras probably does that, but if you do that, that's probably your whole offseason. So it goes back to your point, BK, looking at the market and going, okay, well, how can we protect Goldie Arnado? Well, it looks at the shortstop market. We have flexibility with Tommy Edmond, who can play second base. You can move him around the infield as well. Same with Brendan Donovan. Nolan Gorman doesn't have that flexibility, but if that's the case, you could look to move Nolan Gorman if you wanted to as a trade asset to go and improve your catcher position, whether it be Sean Murphy or Alejandro Kirk. So 
I, I'm not surprised by this report. Every time that we see the Cardinals name listed under a top end free agent, I just go, oh, that, that was an agent throwing them into the mix. Did you just see Buster Olney's tweet? Our good buddy. So apparently speculation among agents who don't represent Bogarts is that he's going to do very well, meaning the final deal in total will be many tens of millions of dollars more than what the Red Sox were offering him this spring. Well, yeah, I mean, their offer was a joke. Okay, so, so. it's over for the Cardinals. Yeah, I mean, I, I think he's going to get, what, $185 million, something like that. He's going to get a, a boatload of money. I, but it's going to be significantly less than what you're expecting out of like Carlos Correa or Trey Turner. That's the only reason I think he was the one that makes if the Cardinals were in a hypothetical world willing to go this route. I think he would be the one that makes the most sense. So if they're not going in on the shortstop market and I, I do want to answer this text real quick. We get this from the 314 and the air comfort service X line is 65780. Guys, Tommy Edmond should not be the reason that the Cardinals don't inquire about a top tier shortstop, specifically speaking about Turner, Correa, and Bogarts. I actually don't necessarily think he is the sole reason Agreed. why. I don't think this is a Tommy Edmond issue. I think it's a roster construction issue. Oh, see, I was going to say it's a Mason Wynn issue. Sure, it's all the above, right? They have Mason Wynn coming. They have Tommy Edmond there right now. They already have guys on the corners that are making 30 plus million dollars per year, and they don't have a ton of money, not as much as I expected them to be able to spend this offseason. So when you add all of that up, it just becomes hard to be able to add one of these shortstops and tell yourself a story of how it fits with them also acquiring a catcher, potentially adding to the bullpen. And so they are just prioritizing different things. We can disagree with that, but that's the route that they deem is best for their club. And we can discuss that as we see what it looks like on the field, whether or not it was the correct route to go. So what are they going to do instead? This also is from Ken Rosenthal's piece. Quote, Mosellock allowed that a change in the marketplace could prompt an adjustment at short, but it is doubtful that he would be able to strike in free, uh, a bargain in free agency or in a trade. As for his outfield, Mosellock said the Cardinals have numerous options, describing their top prospect, Jordan Walker, as, quote, the biggest wild card in the group. He did not rule out a veteran addition to that area, but such a player would likely be a backup behind Tyler O'Neill, Dylan Carlson, and Lars Newtbar, end quote. So now we're at the point where this offseason is a catcher, a backup outfielder to your already four guys in place, and you can never have enough pitching. Yeah. Remember when we uh, talked to Jim Bowden and he gave us our medicine and he said, you guys eat your vegetables. Here's what you're getting. You're not getting a shortstop. You're going to get a catcher. You're going to get a left-handed bat and you're going to get Jose Quintana. What if he was right? Buckle up, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> because this is going to be a wild offseason. I know people laughed at Jim Bowden at the time when he said that. And we we're all like, ah, Jim, you crazy old Uncle Jim. He said Aaron Judge wasn't the best uh free agent available well so. then he came on our show and like kind of backtracked that a little bit but like, what what if that was the right read on what the cardinals plan to do this offseason and i'm not necessarily saying the name is what's important here with quintana but maybe it ends up being set a quintana reliever or two and they do get like a left-handed backup bench bat like a bin gamble they get a catcher i don't know who it is which one it is and that's it that's christian your off season. yeah sure christian vasquez Oh God! What would would the reaction from Cardinals fans be? Let's go down this route. If they get Christian Vasquez, they sign Craig Kimbrell and David Robertson. Oh God! And they add Ben Gamble. That's their offseason. I I got this. 
I'm never going to a Cardinals game oh, again. What was, kind of free agent signings were that? I was going to do this one of my. Stinks. I was going to do one of my favorite radio drops ever on BK and Ferrario. No, God, please, no, no, no. I mean, I'm with him. Do we think that's the most likely path? Well, right now, yeah. I do. Man, right now, I do. Man, that offseason I built yesterday sounds even better than what we just laid out there. And my offseason felt pretty disappointing. This segment hurts. It hurts my heart. I'm starting. I was all excited. Can we talk about something fun? Yeah, can we talk about something more fun? We will here in a minute. You know, USA won yesterday. Blues are back in action tomorrow night. Yeah, nah, they're not fun, fun either. <laughs> is, is that a good thing? Well, at least you, you don't know what can happen there. At least we know what's happening now this offseason. I know they're going to be a struggle to watch. I think what I have a tough time getting a, getting a hold on right now, getting a grip on, really understanding, is how how this is the ideal offseason for them. Like, if if they don't add to the outfield in a significant way, you don't add a shortstop. You add a platoon bat who maybe plays in basically the Corey Dickerson role next year. Maybe it's Corey Dickerson. Maybe. Is this team running it back good enough to really convince yourself if you squint and maybe look like a little off to the side? Like, is it good enough to really convince yourself that they're a championship contender going into Follow the season. Follow-up question. Is Albert Pujols on this team again? He's not. Okay, and, then no. And the backdrop to all of this is the Phillies are reportedly the heavy favorite to land Trey Turner. They're going to get Bryce Harper back midway through the season. You look out in L.A., the Dodgers are reportedly the favorite now for Justin Verlander. They are also, at least in the mix, for Aaron Judge. I don't think he's going to go there, but they're in the conversations, which means they've got crazy money to spend. I would expect that they would sign one of the top shortstops this offseason if they don't get Judge. The Giants are in on Aaron Judge, and that one feels very real. Like The rest of the National League appears to be making some big moves. And the Cardinals' answer is Christian Vasquez and a couple of relievers and uh, Ben Gamble type. But hey, I don't know, man. They may Doesn't not make be, me feel great. They may not be championship contender team. They can win the NL Central. I don't know if they can. Hey, Carlos Santana being on the Pirates might be better than this team. <laughs> They'll win the Central going Oy away. Como they, right? Ugh. T-Bone doesn't get that. They did get. They are looking at my guy Gibby, though. The Pirates are reportedly interested in uh, in Kyle Gibson. Again, better than the Cardinals. That would be a good signing for them. The I think Pirates. they might win 80 games next year. That's not the Cardinals? No, 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 no. <laughs> no their zip the projection says 91, man. Coming up in 15 minutes. It sounds like Robert Thomas should be back sooner rather than later. We'll get into what that means for the Blues coming up at 1130. But next, we don't talk a ton of college basketball. We got to talk about the local schools because SLU had a big game over the weekend that didn't go their way. Illinois and Mizzou both looked good last night. Talk about how those schools are projecting in the early season and a quick reaction to the college football rankings. That's all coming up next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. college basketball locally speaking with Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson I'm Brandon Kylie. it's BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN I was 
glued into the Mizzou versus Wichita State game last night. I know Tanner was all in on the Illinois game. Alex was busy being a father, but we'll get his thoughts uh, on those two games as well. That's like playing a tough zone look, defense, man, man. Look, man, you can't uh, you can't convince a one-and-a-half-year-old about college basketball when all she keeps yelling is Elsa in the basement. Understood. It makes a lot of sense. Definitely couldn't have picked that up on your phone. I get it, man. We've all got our priorities. All right. Uncalled wow. for shot. If I'm <laughs> wow. yeah. Once again, BK calling me a poor father. No, I was calling you a good father. You just, you know, have your job be the priority every once in a while, big guy. Um, In terms of Illinois, I'm sorry, that was uncalled for. Let's start with the Illini. Tanner, I know that you have not been all in on Coleman Hawkins so far this year. He's been one of the players that, like, got the ire of Tanner Hendrickson early on. He's my Andre Corbello 2.0. He was outstanding last night. Finished with a triple-double. He's just the fifth player to have a triple-double in Illinois history. What have you seen from the Illini? What did you learn about them in a huge win last night against Syracuse? I I learned that they can win in different kind of varieties of basketball they like to play with a little bit of tempo like Missouri does too they're more athletic than they were last year now that they don't really have a true center I mean they've got uh I'm drawing a blank on his name danger that can play as their five for them but he's not like Kofi Coburn he's got a little bit more flexibility he comes off the bench he doesn't start but now like last night they did a really good job of they were taking a lot of threes early on in that contest which they like to do they were struggling so what did they do they go to Hawkins and Hawkins picks apart the zone by just working the ball around and they're very unselfish on the break their Sky Clark played really well last night their five-star recruit that came in um, this past season I I learned last night they can play in a multitude of ways last night they kind of slowed things down during a part portion of that game because they were struggling and they were kind of falling into that Syracuse trap of Mm -hmm. that zone where it's forcing teams to think, oh, you got a wide-open three, but you're not going to hit it. What are you going to do? They slowed the game down. They started attacking the paint and really penetrating the zone, and then that led to more three-point opportunities outside of it. That was the first game where I saw Coleman Hawkins, and I went, wow, that's a potential that they've really been hyping over the last two years. And also, Terrence Shannon is a beast. Keep an eye on him because I think he's going to be a first-round pick this year. Worked on a three-point shot. He was awesome again last night. Uh, He went for, I think it was 17 points. He was 5 of 15 from three. Maybe too many three-point opportunities there, but uh, he's been their best player for them so far this year. I get why you're shooting those. Yeah, I I think this team is better than last year's team. I've... uh... I've agreed not to speak the rest of this segment until BK apologizes on air. I agree this year's team is better than last. I am sorry, Alex. That was uncalled for. Somebody on the text line has your back. Poor Alex. He misses a ton of family time covering Blues games. Let him have some nights off with the college sports, no, no. especially no, no. early no. in the college hoop no, no. season. I should be committed. I should be committed to this job. I should yeah. I should not spend time with children. you got to watch Mizzou versus Wichita State with one of the worst broadcasts you will ever see on television. No, no, no. touche. Touche, everyone. Last night. Oh, touché. dude, it was, it was awful. What are we listening to in here, guys? Who's, who's jamming out? <laughs> who's rocking out right now? <laughs> Where's that coming Someone, from? I don't know. I think that's your computer. What's going on? Do you can you hear that over the air? Okay, as long as you can't hear it over the air, somebody's computer was just uh, singing to all of us. All right, so that was nice though. That was, I don't like think Illinois. Is, I think Illinois is better than they were last year. Tanner, how does this team compare to the team that we saw two years ago when they had Io and Kofi, and they ended up getting beat in the NCAA tournament by Loyola? You just wanted to say that, didn't you? That they lost a lot. No, I feel bad about it. Sister Jean, I watched that one. Because that team was excellent. 
I, I think they're similar, but I think that team was better just because Coburn is more dominant that uh, down low in the post, and you had Desumu that could play from the outside, and he could drive the paint. I, I think Shannon kind of brings a little bit of Desumu's game to what they had in that year, but they don't have a guy that can play like Kofi Coburn where he was just so, so strong down low. You could get the ball to him, and he would just go to work and put up 20 points if you needed it, and he could play decent defense down in the post. They don't really have that guy. Danger plays really well, has played really well, but he's nowhere near on the level of what Kofi Coburn was. So I think they are somewhat similar. I think they've got better floor spacing now because they don't have a true big man that kind of clogs the middle of the paint. But Danger can provide that off the bench a little bit, and then they've got the spacing with Shannon, Hawkins, Sky Clark's looking like he's going to be a really good player for them. Melendez can shoot the three. They've got Meyer from Baylor that plays well, and they've got, uh, I'm drawing a blank on the kid's name, but they got a kid that's a three-point specialist that's coming back off a foot injury. So I think, I think this team has some of the aspects that that team had but I just don't think it's as good because they don't have a Kofi Coburn. It's really unfortunate that coming up in about three weeks, they're going to have to lose in the the bragging rights game here in St. Louis because Alex, our Tigers, they showed me something last night with that win against Wichita State. (laughs) No, it wasn't defense. They were okay defensively. Not great, but okay. Mm, Wichita State is not great this year. Uh, Let's say that on the front end. I'm not going to make this win something that it was not. But this was Missouri's first true road victory, first true road game of the season. They went on the road, and they got punched in the mouth. Second half, they come out, and they give up a 16-0 run early in the second half. There have been Missouri teams in the past, in fact, like all of them in recent memory, would have laid down there, where they just say, okay, just not our night. We gave up the big run. We're going to have to get this back against SEMO coming up this weekend. Not this Missouri team. This Missouri team is apparently a little different. They fight back despite the fact that they were down. I think it was like 10 points with five minutes to go. And they end up finding a way to push it to overtime. Dennis Gates with a great backdoor play there at the end of regulation. And then I loved the way that uh, to seal the game in overtime, he sent the point guard deep and just said, we're going to go try to win this thing right here. And they did. So kudos to Mizzou for that win last night. I I still don't know how great they are. I don't even know if this team is going to make the NCAA tournament. But I think they've got a chance. And I didn't expect that coming into the year. I think that the KU game is going to be a hell of a lot of fun. I think that has a chance to be really close. I like Ken Palm and the rankings that they put out there and some of the projections they have. They've got Mizzou losing that game by one point. That's pretty damn close. And you're going to have a a shot in that one. They've got the Illinois game right now as a neutral site game. Four-point spread, four-point margin going into that one. If nothing else, Dennis Gates has already resurrected my interest in Mizzou basketball. And so for him, this early on, to put together a team that has captured my interest, plays a really fun brand of basketball, they're getting up and down the court, they're, I mean, they can score, uh, if nothing else. This is a team that's going to capture my attention throughout the rest of the college basketball season. Yeah, I watched them despite not watching them last night. I did watch them last week, and I know it was against Coastal, but two things stuck out to me. One, this team can shoot, and two, this team's fast. And I think those were elements that they did not have the last couple of seasons. You'll find out, like the Bragging Rights game, yes, you'll get the tests with this team a little bit more, but I'm the same page as you. Dennis Gates has at least sparked my interest in this team compared to what it's been the last couple of years where you don't start watching until they get into like SEC games because then you figure it out. But at least now you're watching them and you can see an identity for this team rather than years past you couldn't. Yeah, I I think they're a team that I agree. I don't know if they'll be an NCAA tournament team, but they definitely have a shot. And I think it comes down to 
What's their defense look like once they get into conference play? I think the defense is actually – last night, again, I thought the defense was fine. I mean, they did give up a lot of points. Part of that was because it went to overtime. It's not great. That's but definitely the weakness of the team. When you look at, like, the three games prior to that, Mississippi Valley State, Coastal Carolina, Houston Christian, I expect you to keep those teams pretty much off the board. And when I look at the number 62, 51, 69, decent job of that. So the defense is starting to improve, and if they can play with pace – that also means there's athleticism on that team to where the defense should start to piece itself together, I think. So I think it just comes down to, will the defense be good enough to kind of come in the come into a game where you're playing like Kentucky or Auburn? Can they have a 5-10 to 10 minute stretch where they can shut them down when it's crunch time? That's where it's going to determine Missouri's tournament faith. The other thing that I love about Mizzou, and it, it, it's kind of reminded me of what we see from Illinois. Now, they're not at the same level as Illinois. Illinois is a better team now, and they have been a better team over the last few years than what Missouri is right now. But give Dennis Gates some time to potentially build it. They have the same identities. Like that that pushing style where you're, you're getting up in tempo offensively, and then you're just annoying the other team like crazy with your traps and your defensive pressure that Brad Underwood likes to do. That's what Mizzou's playing right now with Dennis Gates in charge. You look at it, and this is why I think that the Mizzou-Illinois game could be so much fun this year, because both teams right now are ranked in the top 15 nationally in tempo. They both want to get out and run. And then defensively, they both have the same identity where they're trying to steal the ball like crazy. Right now, if you look at it, uh, in terms of the national rankings, Illinois is 33rd in steal percentage on the season. The University of Missouri, first in the country. They get a steal on 18% of their defensive possessions. That's remarkable. And this is something that is very different than what they've been in recent years. They're just fun to watch, man. This is a really fun style of basketball. So kudos to Dennis Gates for what he's been able to do thus far. Before we get out of here, on the slew side of things, Tanner, I did not watch this game over the weekend. I know you did. Alex, I did a bad job. Of course not. You're not going to ask me because Um, why would I? Did you watch the slew game over the weekend? Why would I, BK? Hey, man, I wasn't going to knock you for it. They had a really big game uh, against Auburn this weekend. At Auburn. And this is one of those games that we talked about last week where they could potentially build their resume early in the season because of their conference conference. We know what this has been in the past. They get docked because of that at the end of the season as we're getting into selection time. SLU couldn't come up with the victory. Now they have already had a big one this year against Memphis. How much of a lo- how big of a loss was that for SLU in your mind, Tanner, when it comes to their uh their resume? I think it's huge. Because I think if they would have won that game in Auburn, if they don't have a bad A-10 regular season, I think they would have been a tournament team. I, I think that win locks you in because you've already beaten Memphis, who's ranked highly in Ken Palm, and you've got a road win against a top 15 team in Auburn. And it was just like last year where it was a game that I felt like they deserved to win. To me, they were the better team on the floor against Auburn for a big chunk of that game, and it was kind of the same story as last year. They went cold from the free-throw line. I think they finished 1-for-11 in the second half from the free-throw line, and they missed an opportunity to close out one of the best teams in the country in Auburn, in my opinion. So I think it's a massive loss for them because I do believe if they win that game, as long as they don't struggle in the A-10, they probably have a resume to where you could look at and go, okay, I can see SLU as a tournament team. And part of the problem for them now is Dayton, or yeah, Dayton, excuse me, had a terrible weekend. They lost three straight and were beat pretty handily in most of those games that they lost. So it was a rough weekend for Dayton, who's supposed to be one of the top Mm -hmm. teams in the A-10. Now you look at Dayton a little bit differently. Their resumes hurt. So now there's not really a quality team in the A-10. I think now SLU is going to have to probably win the A-10 to get into the tournament. And uh, they should. I think they're the best team in the A-10. Dayton, to me, was not impressive. So I think they're the best team in the A-10. I think they'll be a tournament team. But I do think it's going to come down to 
They can't have slip-ups during the regular season in the A-10, and they probably got to win that conference to get into March, in my opinion. 65780 is your covered service tax line. Guys, if Mizzou played SLU today, who would win? Missouri. I think it'd be really close. This is the year where I actually think that it's almost unfortunate that those teams don't have anything scheduled between them because I, I think that could be a really fun game between those two teams. They're remarkably similar. They both play really high-tempo offense, and they both have struggles defensively at times where they have got some breakdowns. But offensively, both of them can score. I think it'd be really close. I think I would lean Missouri side of things there. I, I just think they're a more talented team right now, which is not something I expected to say coming into the season. But I think it'd be really close. Yeah, I think I would edge out with Mizzou also. Uh, the the thing with me with SLU, and this seems to be the narrative every year, like they struggle from the free throw line. 28.6% is uh, not good. And if you're talking about blowing a, a late lead to Auburn, where you have the chance to win that one, you always go to that free throw stat where one team mm-hmm. shot 63% from the line and the other shot 28%. I, I just think the big difference would be that I, I think Missouri's got better shooting. Oh, overall. yeah. I and, I, and, I think that, and I think that would be the difference because I think it would be close. And though I question Missouri's defense, I think they can shoot their way to where they could beat SLU. I think I that's think what I think Missouri's take. got good shooters. I need to see it, though. Like, the, the only guy that so far on the season has been good from three is really Demoy Hodge. And Nick Honor has done a pretty good job from out there as well. But that's kind of it. I thought they would be a better shooting team than they have been so far this season. And it just hasn't quite come around the way that I expected it to. Coming up in about 15 minutes or so, we'll get into questions and answers. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line. But coming up next, we got some news yesterday on Robert Thomas. It was good news. It was unexpected news. What does it mean for the Blues as they take the, take the ice later on this week? We'll talk about it next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Yeah, he, he did okay today. He was pretty pleased with, with what, how he felt. And, uh, I think, you know, there's a good chance he'll be a player Thursday. Uh, now, we got to wait and see uh, how he does tomorrow in practice. But, uh, you know, today was a good day. Alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kiley. That was Craig Berube yesterday on the Fast Lane. If you missed any of their conversation, be sure to check it out on the podcast page, 101ESPN.com, and the free 101ESPN app is where you find it. That was his response when asked, what's the latest with Robert Thomas? It sounds, Alex as if Robert Thomas might actually be able to play in the Blues next game. That will be tomorrow night against the Hurricanes. You'll have pregame coverage right here on your home for the Blues 101 ESPN tomorrow at 6 o'clock. Today, during morning skate, Robert Thomas was indeed centering Buchnevich and Tarasenko once again. They have the O'Reilly, Levo, and Sod line back together. And you've got Shin centering Kairou and Barbashev with Jake Neighbors on your fourth line Achari and Pitlick are on that fourth line with him. Let's stick with Thomas here for a second. First of all, this is great news because we saw what they looked like without him. They were clearly missing a playmaking center. We saw the value of having Robert Thomas out there on the ice. You surprised that he's back this quickly, though? No, because it sounds like, at least from the reporting, that they really missed. They 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 avoided a major injury with Robert Thomas, and because they were so... Because they were so kind of like heads day to day right now, we'll have to wait until we'll have to see kind of an evaluate. It made me wonder if they were waiting for swelling to go away so that they can figure out what this was. I mean, they've held guys out even if they feel like they're okay to return 
because I feel like you want to make sure these guys are as close to 100% as possible. Like they did this with Bucinavich, they did this with Saad, they did it with Pareko. So it wouldn't surprise me if they missed Thursday's game with Robert Thomas. But I also look at it and say, okay, well, if this was just kind of an awkward fall for him and he's good to go and it's not anything concerning, then it it makes sense that he's coming back. It, it happened at the perfect time where you get two days off for Robert Thomas where he can actually skate and practice. Today, I think, will be the more telling sign, like Barubi said, because yesterday was an optional. Today, you're going through like an actual practice with physical play and some checking. You see how you come out on that one. But no, I, I mean, look, Robert Thomas doesn't really miss a whole lot of games unless it's something serious. So it's not surprising to me that he's saying he's good to go and back on the ice. A slightly unintended consequence of this, just kind of projecting forward why I think it's it's huge for them to get him back right now. And maybe this is obvious, but... I'm just glad that we're going to not have any excuses as to what this team's looking like over the next few weeks. Because you're going up against really high-level competition. We've talked ad nauseum about what this schedule looks like over the next month or so. It's going to be difficult. It's imposing in terms of the teams that you're going up against. And when you have this outlook, if they were without Robert Thomas, it's easy to explain Hey, you know, they, they ended up going, whatever it is, uh, four and 10 in this stretch of games, but they were without arguably their best players. Yeah. So maybe we hold on, ho- hold on hope a little bit longer and it can get turned around when Robert Thomas gets back. And I could totally understand that explanation. It's, it's an excuse. It's an explanation. It's whatever you want it to be. But now that you've got him back into the fold, we'll know what this team really is. And that's barring some sort of injury that could pop up at some point in the next few weeks. But I'm glad that we'll actually have more understanding of what this team is. And we're not going to have to look at, yeah, but they were without that guy. Yeah, I don't disagree, especially you don't want to use those excuses at this point of the season, because now is when things start to get a little bit hotter among general managers when they're speaking with each other and talking about kind of what their team looks like. By the end of December, if you're a GM, you have an idea of what your team is going into the holiday breaks and then into January when you start talking heavier about the trade deadline. So yeah, I don't want any excuses. I mean, you had your full roster against the Buffalo Sabres. You had your full roster against Tampa Bay with the exception of not playing Josh Levo, but you had your full roster and you didn't perform well. Yes, you were without Robert Thomas against the uh, Florida Panthers for the remainder of that game and found a way to win, and then you lost versus Dallas with Thomas. So no excuses, full lineup on the ice. This extends the depth of the team. Honestly, I'm a little disappointed they don't have Kyrou with Thomas and Buchnevich because I feel like that's a line you just keep running with. But you also have to get the best out of Vladimir Tarasenko right now. So Kairou with Shen worked, and now you put the line back together that was so good last season. So the other thing that I wanted to discuss with you, Alex, is this this fourth line configuration. That yesterday they decided to send Alexei Torovchenko down to the AHL for a conditioning assignment. That makes sense. We had talked about it. Like, why isn't he playing so much? Maybe it's just he's not at 100% right now. And that seems clear based on their decision to send him down. So your fourth line at Morning Skate today was Neighbors, Achari, and Pitlick. I think it's, at least for me, becoming increasingly clear that this fourth line isn't going to be at its full strength until they figure out what or when Alexei Torpchenko is back at full health. Achari is a real piece. Uh, He is a guy that has been everything we hoped he would be and then some. I think Torpchenko, we saw it last year at the end of the season, how impactful he can be as a fourth line player. And you're really looking for that third piece. Could it be Pitlick? Maybe neighbors, maybe Walker, maybe. Is it somebody that you're going to have to trade for at the deadline? That's possible. You got options in house. Alexandrov had some moments for you where he was just playing that direct game that they're looking for. 
But I, I think you know two of the three eventually will be Torpchenko and Achari, which is a good place to start, but they just need to get Torpchenko right. Yeah, I mean, you won't know what this team is until you got Torpchenko with the fourth line. I, I just think this team goes... I, I'm, I'm just a little confused with... Jake Neighbors as the fourth liner because like if you were going to do this move why not keep Alexandrov on the team because he's more of a fourth liner for you than Jake Neighbors is but maybe this is just the cost the the, the roster constraints to where they thought Thomas was going to be out longer they recalled Jake Neighbors so now they're going to get Toropchenko healthy when he's good to go you'll see the flop that way with Neighbors and Toropchenko but this fourth line I think was built in the mindset of Achari centering it and you'll get Alexi Toropchenko on one wing I personally believe and this might be tinfoil here I believe they viewed this season that Barbashev was a fourth liner because they were going to get the best out of Logan Brown and Jake Neighbors to be in the top nine and the best case scenario for this team is to put a 25 goal scorer on your fourth line with Nola Chari and Alexei Toropchenko hasn't worked out that way and it could maybe, maybe they end up there. trading for a top nine guy and you bump down Barbie eventually but two out of the three and look I think Tyler Pitlick has played very reasonable for a fourth liner especially on the wing Nathan Walker is a very adequate player to play on that fourth line for you but this team won't go with a fourth line until they've got Torpchenko healthy playing with Nolachari and then figure out that other formation with them Blues back in action tomorrow night against the Hurricanes pregame with Alex begins at six o'clock coming up at about 15 minutes or so JP Morosi is back on the the prowl of the Cardinals potentially trading for a Blue Jays catcher. Who's it going to be? What's he going to take? We'll talk about that coming up in 15 minutes. Questions and answers coming up next. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. You've got questions. We may have the answers. Maybe text now to 65780. It's PK and Ferrario's questions and answers on 101 ESPN. Brought to you by James Carlton with State Farm. Have drivers under 25 on your insurance? Save hundreds of dollars a year with CarltonInsurance.net. Covered service X line for questions and answers from the 314. Alex, this is for you. Why do you think that the Blues are splitting up Thomas and Cairo? They seem to have a lot of chemistry. They think and play the game in the same way. Why not put Vladdy with Shin and Barbie? I think you got to get the best out of Vladimir Tarasenko, and you know that Kairou can play with Braden Shen. Heck, his point streak, that eight-game point streak, for six of those eight games, he was playing with Shen and Barbashev. So you know Kairou can play there. I just think it comes down to, and I don't know this to be certain, but it feels like the coaching staff looks at it and says, the only way we could get the best out of Vladimir Tarasenko is if he's with Thomas and Buchnevich. We've tried him with O'Reilly, and it hasn't worked. We tried him with... Braden Shannon it hasn't worked and you're not going to put him on the fourth line so the best case scenario I mean look he had five points in his first two games playing with Thomas and Buchnevich so I just think next year you're probably going to be looking at Kyrou Thomas and Buchnevich but this year you've got to get the best out of Vladimir Tarasenko yeah and I, I can't remember who it was I think it might have been Kerber who said this with us last week and we could talk about it with him again today if people are curious about it uh, I think he said listen I just don't think that Tarasenko and Shin in the past have really played that well together they for haven't. whatever reason. Um, so that that could be a factor in this as well. It's about chemistry, and if those guys don't have chemistry playing together, 
go elsewhere. I mean, just think about it. Like throughout the, the tenure of Vladimir Tarasenko and Braden Shen together, it's been a very rare occurrence that we've sat there and said Shen, Vladdy, and insert name here have worked well together. It was Sh- Schwartz, Tarasenko, and Laterra, and then it was Tarasenko playing with, I believe, the the Stanley Cup season. I believe he was playing on the line with. So that might have been the year that he and Shen worked well together that uh, Stanley Cup season, but Schwartz was on the line with them, and Shen and Schwartz were working well together. And then the last couple of seasons, it's been Thomas and Tarasenko. Uh, 65780 is your comfort service text line. Prediction time from the 618. What do you guys think? Who do you think will be the biggest name to sign during the free agent meet or during the winter meetings, rather? Which free agent do you think will be the biggest name to sign during the winter meeting? From the report, and I forgot who had it, basically said for people that were dis- – was it Passan that put it out in his piece today that said, like, for those who were disappointed in the last couple of years for how the winter meetings looked because it wasn't in person, you'll get the different effect this season for in person because a lot of stuff's going to go down. Honestly, I would probably say the biggest name got to be – it's either Trey Turner or Aaron Judge. I think Judge signs. At the meetings? Mm-hmm. At some point over <laughs> See, the next I think week. Tur- I think Turner does. I think, I think Turner's signs. going to the Phillies. Yeah, that, I do that would too. Be, if I had to predict any one individual player with a team, I think it would be twofold. It would be Turner to the Phillies and Justin Verlander to the Dodgers. Both of those feel, and this is just me reading the tea leaves, like they're going to happen. I'm still trying to figure out where Carlos Correa is going to sign. Same. Because yeah. I, I don't think it's the Dodgers. I don't. I mean, maybe it's the Yankees if they don't get Judge. I... The Yankees, for some reason, feel like the fit because they see they went off with the oh we're gonna go with the rookie shortstop. I wonder if the that, that's the Giants' pivot. Like Maybe. whoever doesn't get Judge, Judge Correa. signs Correa. That Part of me wonders if Bogart signs with the Yankees. Just a middle finger to the That'd Red Sox. I, I think I agree with you guys. I, I do think Judge is either gonna come off the board at the meetings or like right after. Like, okay. I don't I think, think Verlander ju- signs too. By the way, yeah, I, I think somebody's gonna sign before the meetings start. I don't know who that's gonna be just yet, but I, I think that some it's probably Turner. I think Turner signs before the meetings because it sounds like him and Philly. That almost sounds like a done deal. Like I, I think Turner goes to Philadelphia before the meetings start. And then once the meetings start, Judge comes off the board, and then you start to see the dominoes really start falling and see where everybody kind of lands. 65780 is the ear comfort service text line from the 618. Guys, is it true that somebody called the cops on you yesterday for being mm. offensive? It is? Yeah, BK was super offensive on the side of the It, it is indeed true. Uh, somebody decided we were outside, and I was serving my punishment. Um, too much fun. T-Bone's riding on olive. very vulgar words on a white poster board. I was wearing a Pinocchio costume. With a sign that read, I'm a real boy and I suck at football picks. And I think somebody that drove past didn't get a good read at the sign and football pick said something else. I don't know why they decided to call the cops, but we did have the Creve Corps police come over three of them. (laughs) and say, hey, we got a call. Somebody said that you had a vulgar sign. And that you were in oncoming traffic. Yep. Those were the two things that they were worried about. They said, please do not go into the street. I said, don't you worry. (laughs) I want to go out there even less than you want me to. Uh, And please just make sure that you don't put anything on that sign that you wouldn't want to have on there. Why are we wasting the Creve Corps police officer's time? Like, and they were phenomenal. Like the guy got out. And the first thing laughed. he said, he was like, this is hilarious. <laughs> and then we explained to it and he's like, all right, well, we got a report that you had vulgar saying words on the poster and you don't. So you guys are fine. But like, why are you wasting the creep court police officer's time? I don't know. Come on. It was amazing. Even if there were vulgar words on that sign. 
I will say thanks to all of you that drove by yesterday and made sure to give us a shout out. A lot of you had some questions for me. Uh, many of you just honked to show your appreciation. I'm sure that's what that was. Many of you just laughed. And yeah, some of you of... took pictures while you were uh, and while th- you're driving by. And thank you all for uh, not getting into fender benders. I on olive. <laughs> most shocking there. thing in the world. Like I would have definitely placed a bet and would have lost. No surprise uh, on somebody getting in a wreck. There were a lot of people that kept slowing down funny. and speeding yeah. up. Yeah, because you could see everybody like as they were coming towards us. You could see they had their eyes on the road, and then as they got closer, you just saw the turn. And look at BK yes. and not look back at the road either. Nope. Just look and at BK. And they would stop and then also, speed up again. A lot of you guys are on your phones while you're driving. Yeah. Let's not do that Let's anymore, Stop texting friends. and driving, ladies and gentlemen. You're on Olive. It's a busy road. There was one person <laughs> who literally was driving slowly, I might add, but he had his phone and he had it behind the passenger yeah. seat taking a picture. And I'm like, dude, turn around. Uh, final thing here. 65780 is your comfort service text line. This comes from the 712. Guys, Jim Bowden says the Cardinals and his predictions will re-sign Jose Quintana for two years and $24 million. Is that lazy analysis or just unfortunate accuracy? <laughs> I'd be fine if they re-signed him. Two years and $24 million. God, please no. You're, you're trying to do with Jose Quintana what you've done with other free agents in the past, like where you're like, oh, yeah, that was a great season. Let's see if we can get it again for two more years. And it's going to blow up in your face. You don't need another. I don't think you need another starting pitcher unless it's an ace, especially another left-handed starting pitcher. That's not an ace. Yeah. I, And I just can't see where the Cardinals would go to Quintana and go, hey, we'll give you two years, $24 million. Where are you going to be in a rotation? Well, we have no idea. Yeah. But $24 million the million way spot. they do that is if they're trading one of their yeah, current starters. And I don't think they're doing that. So I, Why I don't would think you it was, do that? I don't think it was lazy analysis from Jim Bowden. I, I think that he, he heard Moe's presser where Moe said you can never have enough pitching and said, okay, they're probably looking at a starting pitcher. And if you're going to bring in somebody, Quintana still would make some sense. I, I just don't think they're going to do it. And when you look at all the other names, like in his piece, he had where one big free agent could go before the winter meetings. Cardinals aren't in on shortstops. So they're not going to be connected to that. And all the big time like outfielders, I think other teams are going to overpay them to where the Cardinals won't be in on that market. So where does he go? He goes to a pitcher that they're familiar with. Sure. Yeah, it makes sense. I understand how you could end up in that area. I just I don't think that they're going to resign Jose Quintana. But if they do, I think like my first take, if next week, this time next week, the Cardinals have resigned Jose Quintana. My takeaway would be somebody's getting traded from the current Cardinals current rotation because I don't think they're going to go into the season with everybody they already have under contract in their rotation and then adding Jose Quintana. That just, to me, doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I think you'd have to deal from your strength. Coming up in 15 minutes, we're getting into more likely to happen. You give us two scenarios. We will tell you which one is more <laughs> likely. But next, speaking of Cardinals offseason moves, J.P. Morosi is speaking for, or is pushing for a specific Cardinals trade. We'll tell you who he thinks makes sense for this team. And whether or not we would pull this deal off, we'll do it next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. going to have behind the plate this year with Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kylie. earlier today. Ken Rosenthal reported that John Mosellock in a conversation with Rosenthal said that acquiring an everyday catcher is the team's clear cut. Number one priority. No surprise there. We knew that going into the off season. I, we've said all along the off season starts with who they end up with at catcher. And then we can figure out what they can do with the remaining money or prospects based on who they have at catcher. 
John Morosi of MLB Network has been connecting the dots recently between the Cardinals and the Blue Jays. While we've spent so much time talking about the potential of trading for a Blue Jays catcher, here's what he had to say yesterday on MLB Network about that possibility. Danny Jansen for Lars Newtbar is a really good fit. You would say on both sides. You may have some issues where uh, perhaps it's not exactly full value for value, but that's pretty darn close. And it's often hard at the trade market to, to find fit for fit, especially among two teams that believe they're contenders. I think that on both sides, Jansen for Newt Bar, where you consider how productive Newt Bar was towards the second half of the season in St. Louis, that's a pretty good fit on both sides that I, I wouldn't be surprised at all if we saw something come something like that come to fruition there during the winter meetings next week. So let's start with this. I actually don't think it's one for one great value. That's this is the first place that I would disagree with John Morosi. I think Lars Newbar right now on the trade market has more value than Danny Jansen. And a big reason why is team control. Danny Jansen is 28 years old. He has two years remaining of club control. He's going to make an estimated $3.5 million this year in arbitration. Next year is his final year in arbitration before he officially hits free agency as a 30-year-old catcher. Now, Danny Jansen, prior to this season, was like a, a major league average catcher. He's fine. Pretty good hitter. He's okay. Above average, maybe you would say, um, at the plate. And defensively, he's okay. Like that, that's kind of what he was. And then this year he broke out, had an 855 OPS, was 40% above league average. Offensively, he was for the Blue Jays basically what Albert Pools was for the Cardinals this past season. So an excellent season at the plate. But here's what he's played in terms of the number of games over the last three years. 43 games in the shortened 60-game schedule, then 70 games in 2021 and 72 games last year. Not a dude that gets behind the plate a whole lot. So that's something else to keep in mind. All of that is why I don't believe he has the same amount of value as Lars Newtbar. So if you're doing one for one, I think the Cardinals are getting fleeced there. I don't think that's a good trade from their perspective. But in theory, Alex, the, the concept of the Cardinals trading, not for Alejandro Kirk, but instead targeting Danny Jansen. What do you think of that possibility? Because I do think he'd come at a cheaper acquisition cost. Yeah, let's just start with Danny Jansen. I, I would be fine with it. I don't think it, I, I think you're, I don't think you're making that significant of a change offensively. Now, you didn't get much from your catcher position last year, and obviously this player had a really good season, but it was one season where he had a really good season. So that's what I'd be concerned about. And as you mentioned, you're not getting a full year from him behind the plate. And I'm not expecting Yadi or Molina type numbers, but you are expecting probably somewhere between like 90 and 100 games as a catcher for you. And this tells me I'm going to be playing a lot of uh, Andrew Kisner also, which makes me a little concerned. But you're improving your catcher position better than what it was last season. And it's not going to cost you a lot. So I would be fine with that, but I'm on the same page as you. I'm not making this trade straight up with Lars Newbar because that's too much in my opinion to give up because if you're not making any signings this off season, you're banking on Lars Newbar being one of your three outfielders, at least to start things off. Yeah. And I'm with you there. I, I, as much as I am lower on Lars Newbar than everybody else, it seems, I wouldn't trade him straight up for Danny Jansen because Danny Jansen, to me, and it's it's a different story, but he kind of, when I look at his baseball reference page, the first four years of career, he's 14% below league average. I, I look at that and I go, it kind of reminds me of what Tyler O'Neill's career kind of was, where it was, it was kind of hit and miss. You could see the upside, but then you look at the baseball reference page, you go, eh, I don't know. And then he has the one breakout year and and then you just don't know what Jansen's going to be following. O'Neal had injuries and wasn't the same guy. Is Jansen really going to be the guy he was last year? 
I would probably bank on not, and and if that's the case, I'm not willing to do it a trade just straight up for Lars Newpar. Would I have interest in acquiring him? Maybe, but he's low on my list in terms of, okay, here are my catching options. He's probably like fourth, fifth on my list. And if you were to trade for him, I'm not giving up that much, that much in Lars Newpar's uh, value for just him straight up. It would have to be more of like two mid-level prospects or something along those lines or a prospect to get it done rather than a guy that's up at the big league level like Lars Newpar. He's interesting because he, I mean, he, he changed something about his approach last year. He hit the ball harder way more often. He was hitting the ball in the air a little bit more often than he had been previously. Like everything about his approach, low strikeout rate, high walk rate, everything looks good. All the peripherals would suggest, yeah, what he did last year is is very real. Uh, the batting average on balls in play was actually low. He got a little unlucky with what he ended up with in terms of his overall numbers. So it, it's all there for him if you believe that it is real. And I just I don't know how anybody could tell you one way or the other if they do. Now, if he, if if what he did last year sustains over the next couple of seasons, you might actually be getting a little bit of a steal. You're, you're potentially buying low on a guy that is on the ascent in terms of his career trajectory because he's 27 years old. Maybe he just figured it out. We know it takes a little longer for catchers to develop. And maybe it was the injuries that were holding him back as they were previously for Tyler O'Neill. And now you're acquiring a guy that's going to be 28 years old, is pretty athletic, like that's something that is in his profile, and hits the ball really well. And you're getting him for a decent price, certainly way cheaper than what you would be getting Sean Murphy for or Alejandro Kirk for. So I I do get the appeal, but I think there's only one way I'm making this deal. The way that I make this deal for Danny Jansen is if, instead of it being Lars Newbar for Jansen straight up, The Cardinals are able to rid themselves of the Paul DeYoung contract in this trade. So you would be including him. So that way the Blues, or Blue Blue Jays rather, are, I think they're targeting Lars Nupar. It it sure seems to me like he fits the profile of player they're looking for. They want a left-handed outfielder that plays quality defense, has a high on-base percentage, and doesn't strike out a lot. There's not a lot of those guys around Major League Baseball that are going to be available that are ready to go for a contending team right now. Lars Newport is that guy. So if he is specifically the, the player and the type of player that they're looking for, maybe they would say, Cardinals, how do we find a way to trade for Lars Newport as opposed to starting the deal with what are you going to give us for Danny Chance? Does that make sense? So in that scenario, I think what the Cardinals would say is, hey, if you will take this contract from us to attach to an asset that we think has a lot of value in Lars Newport, this takes down the value of Newt because we're attaching a bad deal to it. Take that. It rids us of $11 million from the books this year because of his $9 million salary and the $2 million buyout that's coming up this upcoming offseason. That will be a, a good enough deal for us to trade for Danny Jansen. In that scenario, it opens up some more options for the Cardinals this offseason in terms of what they have available to them payroll-wise. If you traded Newt, Plus DeYoung, you now have $30 million potentially to spend. Maybe a little bit more, depending on what they are willing to do on the open market. You have solved your catcher question. So now, if you want to get into the shortstop market, you could. It's at least realistic money-wise with what they have available to spend this offseason. If you wanted to get in on the Carlos Rodon talks, you probably could, because now you have the money to spend there. I don't think you could get all the way up into the Verlander or DeGrom conversations, but... Now that second tier of the free agent starter path, 
that's available to you. The second tier of the position player, you could sign any of them and you've got that money available. Maybe you get into the Brandon Nimmo sweepstakes. Those are the kinds of things that suddenly become possible if you make that kind of a deal. Now that you have that as a possibility, Alex, and I don't know how realistic it is, but just in a hypothetical world, does that interest you? Yeah, it interests me. I mean, that was part of my ideal offseason last or yesterday when I said, like, I'm going to, I got Alejandro Kirk, but I gave up Newt Bar and DeYoung and had to give up more assets. You don't have to give up more assets. You probably just have to give up Newt Bar and DeYoung to get a Danny Jansen in Toronto, accept that contract. Here's the thing, though. Are you going to actually spend that money? And that's the part that's the that question. we get to. And I just don't believe they're going to. Now, with the comments of Sami Edmund being a very, very good shortstop. Uh, they're looking at this says, well, we don't need that. And now you're trading away an outfielder that you were planning on being one of your three until Jordan Walker was ready. And let's go down the hypothetical path that Jordan Walker's not ready right away or goes through his struggles. Now you got two outfielders and nobody playing that third, unless you sign somebody who's a backup veteran that they talked about. And is that player going to be impactful if it's Corey Dickerson level? So I would love the, to have that $30 million available to me. And say like, yeah, I'm going to go spend that on another bat right now because I don't think you need the pitcher. I think you need the bat. But like, if you're getting Danny Jansen and you're getting rid of Bart's Lars Newtbar and you're getting rid of Paul DeYoung and then you just stand pat where you are, I don't think that makes you a better team. But I, I would be on board with any scenario that I could find a way to rid myself of that twelve million dollars because it opens up more opportunities for me to spend that twelve million dollars. Yeah, I would be open to the idea of doing it because I think they need to rid themselves of the DeYoung contract, even if that means they have to basically pay him to go away. Like I. I'm at that point where he just doesn't have value on the roster for the Cardinals. And and as critical as the 26-man roster is, can't really have a spot where it's a guy making $9 million and he provides nothing for the team except good defense, but you have plenty of those guys. So I I would be interested in doing that if that's what it takes to – if that's how you're going to kind of sweeten that pot to where, okay, we'll give give up Newport, but you got to take the DeYoung contract for us to get Jansen. I would understand that. I, I do think if they were to rid themselves of the full $9 million, I do think they would spend it. Now, would it be on the shortstop? I, I, I don't think so because of the comments of a very, very good shortstop. What they probably would do would be my guess is they probably go two high-end relievers and maybe uh, another outfielder like a David Peralta type of guy that, you know, you bring him in here, he can start for you for, I don't know, however many games you need him to before Jordan Walker's ready. Or if Walker's ready, he's the perfect fourth outfielder for you. Provide some decent defense. You probably feel more comfortable with him defensively in the outfield than you do like Juan Yepes or someone like that. So Maybe that's how they get to like a Brantley or a Bellinger. You know, the guys that are going to yeah. get that 15 to $20 million one-year deal and it's a higher-end left-handed hitter as opposed to going the Corey Dickerson path or the Ben Gamble path. You, you get a better player there. You get one or two of those relievers that you're talking about and now you, you have more upside that's baked in as opposed to shopping in the lower tier of those free agent markets. Yeah, and if you can get like a Brantley, and I know he has risk with the shoulder sure. injury, same with a Conforto, who I know Alex is high on. I, I, I think then it allows you, I, I would be a little bit happier with that over David Peralta because I, I think Peralta is a good player like he's not like a one you know of your what he top is. he's not one of your top free agent signings. He shouldn't be. He should be kind of the oh, we have extra money. Oh, he's still on the market. Okay, we'll go get him. But I would rather target Brantley and Conforto ahead of uh, Peralta, and then you can also look at the two high-end relievers that they probably should add. It's a possibility. I- I'm not saying that Toronto would for sure do it. 618 says guys, Toronto would pass on that. It's possible. They have a lot of money to spend, though, and they just freed themselves of $15 million based on the, the trade that they made uh, sending Teoscar Hernandez to Seattle. So they they have money available to them. It's just a matter of, and they've been in conversations reportedly with Brandon Nimmo. So they've got 25 potential million dollars to spend there. They end up instead of getting Nimmo, getting Cody, or excuse me, getting uh, Lars Newtbar. 
well, now you've just saved all of that money. You you could tell yourself a story where you say, hey, we, we got a player way, way more cost controlled for future years. We'll take on $11 million and eat it. Toronto has that money to spend if they wanted to in the scenario because they really wanted Lars Newfar. Coming up in about 15 minutes or so, Jamie said something interesting yesterday about the Blues defensive core. Are they still a defenseman short? We'll get into that coming up in 15 minutes. More likely to happen is next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. What's more likely to happen? They'll figure it out. BK and Ferrario's most likely to happen. Six five seven eight zero is the Air Comfort Service X line for more likely to happen. Let's start with this: some news from the NFL, according to Adam Schefter. Aaron Rodgers not expected to play on Sunday against the Chicago Bears. He just said he was on the Pam McAfee show. I thought they said he was. More likely to happen, Aaron Rodgers or Tom Brady is on a new team in 2023. Um, There was a report today, by the way, that Brady might have four different suitors. If I'm not mistaken, it was San Francisco, Tennessee, New England, and who was the fourth team that I'm forgetting here? Probably Indianapolis. I can't remember who the fourth team was. Those were the three that that stood out to me. New England, Tennessee, and San Francisco. I'll say it's more likely Brady, uh, because I think Rodgers is is just at the point where he's like, I'll just play here until I'm done. Brady, meanwhile, is probably looking for somewhere where he can go be relevant again. If that means anything, and to do that, I I think New England makes the most sense. I would put money down that he's a quarterback for the New England Patriots next year. Interesting. You could make some good money off of that, I would imagine, right now. Uh, The Raiders were the other team with Josh McDaniels. Oh, Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Um, Yeah, but McDaniels isn't a good head coach, so. I I would say it's more likely Brady, just because the Rodgers deal seems tough to move, and though they may want to by season's end and turn the reins over to love. I just think it's going to be too tough for them to do so. I, if anything, I think it would be think it more likely, too, that Rodgers would just retire. I, Brady, I don't have a good sense on. I, I, if he wants to play football next year, I think he will leave Tampa because Tampa just seems like they're in a bad spot. Whatever For whatever reason, I see that roster. I go, it should be better than it is, but they're underperforming, and it's back-to-back years that they've really done that. So I'll say more likely it's Brady, and I, I'm not buying the New England one. I think... Vegas or San Francisco make the most sense for him. I'm telling you, San Francisco makes so much sense. They were reportedly interested last time around. When they traded for Jimmy G, if you guys remember, they originally called the Patriots about trading for Tom Brady. And Belichick said, hey, we're we're not trading Brady right now. But (laughs) we do have Jimmy G. And if you guys are interested in him, we could maybe get a deal worked out there. And that's obviously what ended up happening. And the rest is history. But the 49ers have been interested in him in the past. He is from the Bay Area. His family is there. Obviously, that it's hard not to talk about Brady, or it's hard to talk about Brady without bringing up the, the marriage situation with him getting a divorce this year. I would imagine being close to family couldn't hurt right now. So that feels like a really good fit to me, especially with the clean break coming up with Jimmy Garoppolo. He can go there. You still have Trey Lance under contract for the next few seasons. You get a year or two out of Brady. You figure out Trey Lance later on. That's the one that I would go with here as well. I think it's more likely that Tom Brady goes elsewhere. More likely to happen this weekend. LSU upsets Georgia. 
or one of the other three big teams in the college football playoff rankings right now ends up getting upset. So Georgia, which team is most likely to be upset uh, this week? And let's do it this way. Georgia, USC, TCU, or Michigan? Which of those four is most likely to be upset? I think I'm going to TCU. Well, it ain't Michigan. Trust me. (laughs) Big 10 West? (laughs) Well... I've seen Purdue, and I've seen the whole Big Ten West. It's like garbage, so you don't have to worry K-State's about that K-State's really good. I think K-State's an underrated team right now. I, I I think TCU's the one for me because I this is one of those games that everybody gets hyped about with Georgia versus a really a top 25 team. Oh, can LSU push Georgia? Georgia, you know, the offense isn't clicking. And then they show up, and they win by, like, 42. Like it, That's just the way it feels. Like, it's a 17.5-point spread, I think. I would take Georgia in that in covering. So I would say TCU. I think I'm on the same page there. K-State's the only one that's a real threat, in my opinion. I think Utah could win. I think those are the two for me. I think they might, but just how good USC's offense is, and it they came down to the time. wire. I know, it came down to the, I think it was a two-point conversion, if I remember correctly, that they went on for, like, at the end of the game to win. I don't think they can do that again. I think the offense is too good to where, and I trust um, Lincoln Riley. He's such a good coach offensively. So I, I think he can make the adjustments. I think it's too hard to beat. USC twice in one season. I've just seen too many TCU games come down to the wire. Yeah. And that's why like Agreed. that's why I I just can't trust them against K-State who actually has a really good defense. Uh for what it's worth Michigan right now is a 17 point favorite. Holy cow, that has moved a lot. That's Georgia Tanner's is 17 spread. and a half points as a favorite. TCU's only two and a half, USC two and a half. That, See, I think I would take LSU in that 17 and a half. I have a, I don't know, man. I have a parlay put together on all the championship games from when I was over in Illinois last week. I have Michigan at 14 and a half. So Damn. that line has really moved. <laughs> Good uh, for you. Yes. <laughs> 65780 is the error comfort service tax line for more likely to happen. Guys, more likely that the Cardinals will sign or trade for a top level player or Mo waits until all of the big names are gone and then ends up with somebody that is considered to be a bargain bin deal. Oh, so you mean a Mo special? That's not nice. I'll go with that one. That one's more likely to happen. He even said it in that quote to Ken Rosenthal, where it was like, the only way we're probably getting in the shortstop market is if it's a deal that comes to us. Just take the word shortstop out and say free agent market, because that's what it is. It's a trade for a catcher or it's somebody drops and is a bargain for the Cardinals. Is Sean Murphy considered to be a big name? I think he probably is, even though he's not like a household name. A casual fan probably doesn't know a lot about Sean Murphy, but Cardinals fans have talked about him so much that I think he's become one here. Pre more information of the offseason, I would have said no. But now that sure. we've got all the information, yeah. yeah, that's a huge name. That's like acquiring Shohei Otani for the Cardinals this offseason. Damn. Wow. I'm just saying. I think that Murphy's realistic. I think Jansen's realistic. Kirk. I thought Kirk was more realistic than Murphy. If the Blue Jays are willing to move Kirk, I could see that being realistic. I think that's kind of the the upper level of the market that they're going to be looking at. I don't think in free agency they're likely to sign one of the... At this point, I don't think they're signing a player that's going to make more than $20 million a year. Awesome. I'd agree with that. So I, I would say it's still more likely they trade for that big name than it is they get someone on the bargain bargain deal. I'm just not sure who that player is going to be because, like, Thinking back to last year, I don't really think there was a player that stood out to be in a bargain bin deal. I know a lot of people will point out, well, well, look at the Correa deal. I, it didn't feel like a bargain bin deal for some reason because it was still very high in AAV. It was just shorter term with a bunch of opt-outs, and it just made sense at the time. I would do that in a second this offseason yeah. for one of those free agent shortstops.
I, I agree with you there, but I, I just can't picture somebody just falling through and it being like, oh, he's still there? Okay, cool. Now, maybe it's like a reliever, but is he going to be a high-end name that you look look on and go, oh, yeah, that's that's the great move we were looking for? I don't think so. 65780 is the error comfort service text line for more likely to happen. Guys, more likely to make a significant move at the winter meetings. The Dodgers or the Yankees? Yes. I would Where do you guys think Judge ends up? I think he goes back to the Yankees. See, I think he goes to San Francisco. I, I get the vibe Judge does not want to be in New York. I just The way that's been reported, and they're, they're making all these contract offers, and you see all the Yankees, it's their number one priority. Not once have I heard any report that goes, Judge has interest in returning. I think, he wants, <laughs> I think he's trying to get the Yankees to beg. I think he's trying to make the Yankees make him wanted. And that's when he comes back to him. Like, I think he's going to do this tour he's of playing the game. Yeah, we're going to go look at San Francisco and I'm going to go look at the Dodgers and wouldn't be surprised if he goes and checks out another team in the American League and says, yeah, you know, I'm here, but I want the what Yankees should do is try to get the Red Sox. Involved. That's yeah, I'm surprised, but I don't even know if the Red Sox, the Red Sox don't Red Sox wanna, are too dumb. They yeah, I was going to say they want to be in this rebuild kind of, but. I think he just wants the Red or the Yankees to say we need you here and to up the offer and make it look like we're desperate for you. I think he wants them to get on their hands and knees and beg, and then he's going to leave no matter what. Oh, see, I think he goes back. I, I think he's going to be a giant. I, this just screams him going to San Francisco, um, and then I think the Yankees pivot and will look towards one of the shortstops. I, I think that's how it's going to play out. But in terms of who's going to be more aggressive, man, I. San Francisco feels ripe for some big moves this offseason. Yeah, like but Jacob between DeGrom Dodgers, going there would be an Between Dodgers and Yankees. Player. I think it's the Dodgers. I'm saying Dodgers. I, I, If they're reportedly interested in signing Verlander and Judge, I could see them getting Verlander and Correa. Correa. Yeah, I was going to say, if it's not Judge, Bogart, they're going to go get a shortstop. Like they'll get Verlander, and then they'll get a shortstop. Yeah, I, I think I'd say Dodgers, because I think the Yankees will make one splash. I could see the Dodgers making two. They were quiet last offseason, and that's kind of why I'm I'm wondering. Like they're kind of lying you can in the hear weeds. The Jaws theme song coming from LA, can't you? They, uh, they let that luxury tax kind of drop a little bit here, and then it's like, oh, okay, now let's jump back into it. I also think they saw what we all saw. That team was not the same this year. I understand that they ended up still winning a, a boatload of games. They won 111 games during the regular season. We all said it going into the playoffs. We didn't have the same fear of the Dodgers that we had in recent seasons, and I think they felt that as well. They ended up losing as a result. So I, I think they're going to be super aggressive. I'm with you guys. I, I would go Dodgers here as well. Coming up in 15 minutes, we'll dive into the junk drawer. Tanner has a story for us on a cocaine bear. We'll get into that coming up at 1245. What? But coming up next. Like the, the meth rats or the marijuana rats that we'll get into it. We'll do that in 15 minutes. But next, is there any way to f- fix the Blues defensive issues? And does it all come back to one decision? We'll talk about it next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. What I do think is that eventually at some point, Army might have to add a defenseman. And the reason I say that is, you know, I don't know if Tory Krug is banged up or not. But uh, last night, when you're looking at the minutes, played only 14.59 of ice time. That seems pretty low for a guy that's supposed to be your top four defenseman. Now, I know they dress 7D, but usually the 7D doesn't affect your top four. Maybe you have to get another Nick Letty out there where you have to acquire that veteran defenseman to come in and shore up your blue line, and it's just in case of an injury. Because I think that that, for me right now, when you talk about depth and what's being tested, it's on the blue line. 
Alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendricks, and I'm Brandon Kylie. Thought that was interesting yesterday. Jamie Rivers talking about the Blues defensive core on the fast lane. If you missed any of that conversation, check it out on their podcast page presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers. Alex, we talked about that a little bit yesterday with Jeremy Rutherford. It's like, I I don't really know what's going on right now with Tory Krug. You watch him and... Listen, let's be honest, the performance has not been up to what we were expecting out of him so far this year. You look at the numbers in terms of the ice time, and I always say, listen to their actions, not their words. And their actions are showing you they're not putting Tory Krug in the last two games on the ice as often as they typically do. He's normally around 20 minutes. His most recent game, he was playing like 13 and a half minutes of even strength time. That was roughly the same as Callie Rosen. You were treating him as if he was like a 5'6 defenseman, third pairing defenseman, as opposed to a top four guy. That's concerning to me because he's somebody that you're paying six and a half million dollars per year for the next few seasons. And if he's not at the top of his game, I I think Jamie might be right. You you might need to bring somebody in. But now we get into, okay, but who's available just as we did last year? What is the money that you can realistically afford? And then we have internal questions of, okay, but is Scandella going to be coming back at some point? Because if so, you, you really have no money to spend in that area. Alex, what do you make of their defensive situation right now? Well, you just answered your own question of if what they're going to do. Because getting a guy back from the injured reserve is just as good as making a trade. That's Marco Scandell is waiting in the wings to return for this team. Woo-hoo. Here's the thing. like You can't make a trade for a defenseman. I, I, I'm sorry. There's nobody out there that makes sense for you. And if you acquire somebody, it's going to be a guy who you're forcing into a top four role. You had somebody sitting there for you on waivers who could have been a top four defenseman for you, Mike Riley, and you let him clear. Now, nobody wanted him because he's got another year for $3 million tied to him. But, I mean, that's Marco Scandella money. And you have it available to you right now if you want to improve your defense. I know everyone's going to go to to Jacob Chikrin, but as much as we want Jacob Chikrin, you can't make $4.7 million work, and you also don't want, what would this be, $13.5 million and then add another $4.7 million to your contracts that stand currently in your top four defense. Because then you're going to pay a guy $6.5 million to be a third-pairing defenseman. So as much as we want this team to go and get a defenseman and improve their roster, yeah, you could probably bring somebody in at the trade deadline like you did with Nick Letty, who's making a million dollars and send Callie Rosen down to the minors or make somebody a seventh defenseman, but... I don't think that makes significantly of a difference because you can't acquire a top four defenseman that improves your team, but you can also make work with your salary cap. Yeah, I I don't see a spot where they can go out there and realistically get someone that's going to make an impact in the top four just based on the contracts that they have. And I know that Scandella's money is on LTIR right now. It sounds like that they're hoping he's going to be back before the end of the regular season. Well, from what Curbs had told me, I think he said this on pregame a couple of weeks ago, like Marco Scandella was getting close to starting to skate in December. And if that's the case, I mean, you're probably talking if he's healthy and everything goes okay, January, February, right before the trade deadline. Yeah, so it's not like it's money that you can basically say, okay, we got $4 million that we can spend and right. until we get to the postseason, then the LTIR money, it, there's no cap. It doesn't matter. So I don't think they can operate on that assumption. And, and to the point of Jacob Chikrin, 
it's probably going to cost you your first round pick this year. And if we're being honest with ourselves, I don't know where that pick's going to fall. And you now they can trade. Really you point. might be trading they, the top five now, pick. They can add protection to that. They can make it you know top ten protection. But you're top not five, getting Chikrin. Exactly. But then also it's going to mean you're going to have to add more assets involved because mm-hmm. it devalues that first round pick. So yep. I don't think. And Chikrin's the only guy until we start seeing more rumors as we get closer that I can look at right now and I can say, yeah, he's probably a guy that would could make sense. He would be a guy that I could say you could go get and bring in. But I don't want to give up the assets just because I don't know where this team's heading. I don't know what their uh, trajectory is for this season. Here's and that is a really good point, T Bone. Um, I, I don't know if if you're Doug right now. I don't know if know if you want to just not even this season, but trade the next couple of seasons in terms of draft pick compensation because you don't know where your team's going to be. As much as you want them to be competitive, you're tied into a lot of contracts right now. This season, you might become a playoff team if you get things right. But what's next season look like and the season after that? So, like, Doug, Doug's got to be careful with this. Here's what I would say. Rather than go out there and acquire a defenseman that you're just trying to shape into a top four player, go get a top nine winger. Go play the way that Doug Armstrong has created this roster to play in the offensive zone. Be better offensively and not have to worry about defense. Can we go back a couple of years? Why would you want to do that, man? Back to when we had, like, Federko on the ice. That's, that's more than a couple. Oh. Back to when uh, Brett, Brett Hall and Adam Oates were on this team. So much of what we're watching right now goes back to the Petro decision. And it I know goes nobody, back to the Petro decision. Huh? It all goes back to the Petro decision. I know nobody wants to bring it up, and I, I, I'm not saying, like, the Blues are going to stink because they let Petro walk. But when you go back to the decision to trade for Justin Falk, this has always been my mindset. And I know there were a lot of people at the time that pushed back on the notion that Falk was the Petro replacement. And I think there's some truth to that. Like, I, I'm not sure that he necessarily was, but I think they traded for Justin Falk because they knew they likely weren't going to be able to re-sign Petro or weren't going to go to the, the demands that Petro had. And so they wanted to find somebody else that could at least replace some of what Petro brought to the table. So you go out there and they found a good player. Justin Falk is a, a very good hockey player. But if instead of going out and making that deal, they simply re-signed Petro. They just knew at the time, we're going to make this work. We're going to get Petro back here in St. Louis. Maybe it's on a, what, $8.5 million per year type of a deal. He's at 8.8 right now. Maybe it was closer to 8.5 here in St. Louis. Let's say that. If you did that and you don't have Justin Falk, I don't know if they go out and sign Tory Krug that next offseason or not. Maybe they do. But let's, in this hypothetical scenario, say that they don't, right? And every other move is basically the same. And this is hard because you don't know how they would have built around Petro as opposed to what they had available to them at the time. But if we just make everything else the same, you remove Falk and Tory Krug from the equation— Last year, they make the same trade for Nick Letty. He's still here as well. Here's what your defensive core looks like, and you guys tell me if you think this is better or worse than what they currently have available to them. Nick Letty with Petro, Mikola and Pareko, and maybe you think that those are swapped, however you think that they would make it work. Either way works. Callie Rosen and Robert Bortuzzo. In that scenario, with that as your top six defenseman, you have the money now to be able to re-sign David Perron as well. So you've got David Perron in your top nine playing with Ryan O'Reilly. That's your top six. Maybe it's slightly worse. I think you could make that argument. And you might even be able to bring in another player who for like $2 million, maybe you've got another defenseman in that Callie Rosen role. That's actually a little better than what Callie Rosen is. And Rosen is your seventh defenseman. It all goes back for me to that decision. 
not saying you can't overcome it. They can. They did last year. This was a really good team without Alex Petrangelo. But long-term, when you had a, a legit number one defenseman, and Petro is still playing at a really high level. He's like 24 minutes each of the last three seasons playing every night. It's just almost impossible to replace that guy. I remember when we were at the time, Alex, we talked with, who was it? Somebody from up in Toronto who said, the Toronto Maple Leafs for the last decade have been looking for a number one defenseman and they've never been I able to find it. I think that was Craig Button. <laughs> and the Blues have that guy and you don't let that guy walk when you've got him inside of that room. And they let him. And now we've been saying for the last few years, they're, they're still trying to find their defensive core issues. They're solving them. And it seems like regardless of who they add to that mix, it still feels like it's a it's a little short. I've pushed back on that the last couple of seasons because I think actually Justin Falk and Alex Petrangelo, Petro's a better player and anybody's going to tell you that, but the numbers are actually pretty comparable. But you're starting to see it trend more in the direction of, man, if they just would have kept Petro, you might be looking at a different situation with this team. Sure, by the end of that contract, it's probably going to sting, but that's one player that's probably going to sting by the end of that contract. now you've got potentially three of them. Yes, and that's where it really comes down to it. And look, uh, that top four that you envisioned there and and talked about of Pareko and Petro and Letty and Mikola, I think the Blues would probably look at that and say, damn, that's a pretty good top four, and you're probably paying the same amount, if not a little less, than what you're paying right now for your top four. Um yeah, because you basically have like Mikola is already here. You got seventeen million dollars tied up in these guys, and you take basically Krug and Falk out of those thirteen million dollars yeah, you had. Thirteen Petro. million versus the eight and a half for Petro, yeah. so you got five million dollars extra, and that's where I would say that that probably would have just been repurposed into David Perron. And, and to to tie into if us going back with the Petro one, and I know this is in the past, and look, he did what was right for him, but I also think what really stunted this team's growth was them losing Jay Bomeister is when they did. For sure. Because Jay Bomeister, I think, would probably still be playing if not for what happened to him because he was just a guy who could play at that age and he brought the best out of Colton Pareko. So a lot of things have happened, but the Petro one, I think you're always going to go back to and it doesn't help when he's performing well with Las Vegas Golden Knights. But we all knew that was probably going to happen. He's yeah. just too good to not play well. Without Petro, your identity shifted into an offensive team. And the problem is you haven't been able able to consistently have the offense to play that level and style of hockey. And that's where I go back to at the beginning of this conversation, as much as I'd say, go out there and get a defenseman in the off season. So you can tighten things up. I'd actually argue, go get a forward, go get a top six forward. Who's good offensively so that you can just create more puck possession and not put your defense in a vulnerable position. And that's what somebody on the text line says, guys, it has nothing to do with the defense. This team is built to score. If you're, uh, if the Chiefs started uh, scoring 17 to 20 points per game with Patrick Mahomes, but the defense is giving up 24, you would say that it's the offense's fault. That's what's happening right now with the Blues. It's a fair comparison, but what I'm saying is if you ended up with Petro as opposed to Falk and Krug, that extra $5 million that you're saving would be repurposed into that offense. So what Alex is saying, where they maybe go out there at the deadline this year and get the forward as opposed to the defenseman, my assumption would be that forward's already here if you still have Petro and his name is probably David Perron. So it's those two critical pieces that have been removed from this Jenga tower. And that to me is is what's kind of led to where we are today. It just feels more fragile than it did previously. And Doug 
did with Petra, what he did with Bacchus, where he transitioned away from a player into a new core of players. And that's and where he did it well, all things considered. And that's where you really come down to the question of, okay, how does this picture come into form? Because maybe Doug is right. And maybe he's got this identity figured out. And maybe they're waiting on one player to become available to them to make this a whole piece. But right now, I mean, you just can't argue with the fact that Tory Krug in his last three games is a minus nine and is sitting at minus 17 overall, which is worse than the NHL. Like that always looks at you and says, what are we going to do with this? Alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. A little bit of news to pass along. This comes from Luke Horak, who's at Blues Morning Skate. They just talked to Robert Thomas. Robert Thomas said he's on track to return tomorrow. Said after practice, quote, it went really well. I felt pretty good out there, hoping to be back on the ice for the Blues tomorrow. So Robert Thomas sounds like everything went there. well, as we all hoped today at practice. Blues are back in action tomorrow night against the Carolina Hurricanes. Alex will have your pregame coverage right here on 101 ESPN tomorrow starting at 6 o'clock. The Junk Drawer coming up next. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Let's open it up. The Junk Drawer with BK and Ferrario. Brought to you by Together Credit Union. Pay yourself with every purchase. Open and achieve it. Checking account today. Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. In five minutes, we'll tell you what Randy Carricker's ideal offseason is. I, hope I think it brings up an interesting question about what their plans could be going into this. I hope season. it involves a very, very good Tommy Edmond at shortstop. It, it does. probably does. We'll talk about that coming up in about five minutes or so. But right now, let's dive into the junk drawer where Tanner is going to tell us about a bear on cocaine, from what I understand. Yes. Okay. It's the movie going to be sweeping the nation come February. It is called Cocaine Bear, and it is a movie... Inspired by true events, might I add. It's a really Wait, creative what? name. It's a film that follows a black bear ingesting a ton of cocaine and then going on a drug-fueled rampage. The movie that will be sweeping the nation come February, apparently, again, inspired by true events, it's where somebody throws cocaine out of a plane, it lands in the Smokies, the authorities, the popo. Wait, this actually is kind of star-studded. I know. In it. It's unbelievable that it has some decent. Is it Winnie the Pooh? It. <laughs> no, it's got Carrie Russell, O'Shea Jackson Jr., Matthew Reese. This is actually like got some real actors and actresses. And, in and it. they just released the trailer today, so go look it up on YouTube. It's got a murderous rampage after unintentionally ingesting cocaine. And oh, so what's apparently, his face is in this? Ray Liotta is in this. Is this his final movie before he passed away? I don't know. What a terrible way to go out if you're Ray Liotta. <laughs> Cocaine Bear is Coke, the You were in Goodfellas. <laughs> You've been in phenomenal movies, and you end your career with Cocaine Bear. It is inspired by the story of an American black bear who ingested a duffel bag full of cocaine in 1985. Hot yeah. damn. That's Ray Liotta. After, now, I don't know if this turned up. I'm just going off what I saw in the trailer where a plane goes over the Smokies. Oh, my God. And they dump, they throw it out the plane, and this it lands is... in the Smokies, and the authorities are looking for, I guess, the final duffel bag. This is trash. And they can't find it until they run into a cocaine bear. Come on. This, 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 you know what this is? This is, what was that movie? No, I... What do you mean this is trash? This, this sounds trash. amazing. What was that movie? We'll go watch it together. What was that movie that was um, about the, 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 the twister? Sharknado. This yeah. is Sharknado. But this is literally based upon a true story. This is more So quality. they say. 
Paranormal activity was based on true events. You ever heard about those real events that were documented? So was Star Wars. Just happened a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. They happened in my office (laughs) with the light that continues going on and off throughout the day. Well, we're still waiting for the conclusion of that movie in your office. Directed by Elizabeth Banks. This is like a real real movie. I thought this this was going to be a Sharknado type movie. This is absurd. This looks real. I'm in. February. They just showed a bear jumping the length of a road to get into the back of a speeding ambulance vehicle. Look, we got spiced up a little bit, you know. You know, I mean, he's on cocaine. I would imagine that that's real. You should try it, and we'll see if you if this is true. See, we'll just see. That feels like something that would actually get the cops called on us for a, a legitimate reason, as Only opposed to what they were calling for Only if you do it in Creep Core. Coming up in 15 minutes, we're diving into some NFL quick hitters, including where Tom Brady is going to be playing next year. It could include a home return either to San Francisco or Boston. We'll talk about that coming up in 15 minutes. But next, Randy put together his ideal offseason for the Cardinals earlier this morning. We'll play that for you coming up next, including... What I believe is an interesting question about the Cardinals offseason based on his ideal offseason. We'll do that next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Tanner Hendricks and I'm Brandon Kylie. It's BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. Chris Kerber, the voice of the blues, going to join us coming up at 1.30. But right now, Alex, let's talk a little bit about your St. Louis Cardinals. It feels like the free agency market is finally starting to heat up. There was a piece earlier today from Ken Rosenthal suggesting that there could be some moves that happen sooner rather than later. He did have a couple of notes that we talked about earlier today on the Cardinals as well. Wouldn't expect them to be in on the shortstop market, which was to be expected. Jeff Passan also had a piece where he suggested that some of the top free agents could be coming off of the board sooner rather than later, specifically talking about Justin Verlander and Aaron Judge. He suggested that some of the shortstops could be off the market by next week as well. So this is a backdrop to Randy Carricker earlier today on the morning show talking about what his ideal offseason would look like for the St. Louis Cardinals. So if they could trade for Sean Murphy and sign Cody Bellinger and then use that money of which you speak, that increased payroll, to get that front of the rotation starter, that would be the best case scenario. Whether that front of the rotation starter, I don't think the Cardinals will swim in the Jacob deGrom waters, but it seems like Carlos Rodon would be out there for 52 over 2, but that would be, to me, the best case scenario, is to get a front of the rotation guy I'll throw Verlander in there, too. Get one of those three front-of-the-rotation guys, get Cody Bellinger, and get Sean Murphy. So, I I do think that it is worth noting, according to Jim Bowden, now he could be wrong on this, but this is what a lot of the projections have. Jim Bowden has Cody Bellinger getting a $17 million contract this offseason on a one-year deal. Sean Murphy is expected to make roughly $3 million. Carlos Rodon is projected to make about $30 million in free agency. So the offseason that Randy has them putting together would cost the Cardinals roughly $50 million for the upcoming season. Now, they're at 165 right now. That would put them at 215 Their projected budget, according to Derek Gould, is 185 So they'd be going way over what their anticipated budget is. It's possible they do that. Maybe they view Carlos Rodon as being the guy 
that puts him in that range. Or maybe they think, you know what, for Jacob deGrom, we're willing to extend further than where we would typically go. Maybe if you sign one of those guys, you end up trading one of your current starters, and that's the way you make it work money-wise. Let's start with this, though. He basically says, trade for a catcher, add a left-handed bat, and sign one of the the top-of-the-market starters. I want to hone in on the starters because we haven't talked a lot about them, Alex. Is that something you are interested in? Is really targeting, let's call it either Jacob deGrom or Carlos Rodon, because it seems like Justin Verlander's likely headed to the the Dodgers. Probably. Yeah, I mean, I would be interested in it if it's one of those two names because it makes your team better, and you're obviously going out there and you're saying our starting pitching is going to be the dominant force on our team and our offense will figure it out. I just I feel like the money you'd have to spend on Carlos Rodon and Jacob deGrom, you could have just spent it on a bat and a significant bat. So if, the, if that offseason took place where the headliner was them signing Jacob deGrom or Carlos Rodon, yeah, I would be... I would be excited about it. I do think they'd be more likely to go that route than the shortstop market. Now, I disagree with this philosophy because I think that the pitchers are more likely to break than the shortstops are because pitchers break every year. Especially Jacob DeGrom and Carlos Rodon, who have both had injuries. But the Cardinals have shown in apprehension to go that 8-10 to year route. That's where the shortstops are likely to end up is in that long-term contract. And the guys that we're referencing here on the starting pitching market specifically DeGrom and Rodon, are more likely to be in that three to five year range. So while the money is still significantly higher than what we anticipate them spending, the years do make more sense for the Cardinals. Yeah, I I would understand them going the route of signing an ace just because you don't you need an ace. And look, I, I can understand the argument if they decide to, you know, spend that money elsewhere and they can go with the well, Jack Flair will be healthy, and if he's healthy, he's an ace for us. But I, I can understand the route if they decide to go out there and get Rodon or, um, again, Verlander probably gone, uh, DeGrom. But I, I think if you're doing that, there's still got to be a way that you find a way to supplement the offense. And, I, again, I, I mentioned this earlier. I don't think Kirk, Murphy, or Jansen can be a guy that you say that you've brought in via trade and go, that guy can protect Goldie and Arnato, which was one of the aspects that Mo put in his end-of-season presser, that that bat that they bring in has to be able to do. I don't think those guys are protection for those Randy two. would go with the Bellinger side of things, where you're saying that Bellinger, if he reaches what he was, and I, I don't have do, confidence that he's going to. And that's but my thing. Is I'd like, be more willing to do Conforto over Bellinger. And I don't know. I, I can't remember if we had this in the cut or not. I do remember, though, I heard this when Randy brought it up live, and I remember saying... He said something along the lines of, well, the Cardinals would have, or Scott Boris would have trust in the Cardinals because the Cardinals can get a guy to bounce back to being himself. I, I would push back on that because there's a reason the Dodgers let him go. And it's it, partially because the salary was going to be high because he won an MVP and it, it skyrocketed his numbers and you have to give a guy a raise in arbitration. Mm-hmm. But also I think the Dodgers said we can't fix him. And and I don't think the Cardinals can fix him. And let's be honest, the Cardinals couldn't fix Paul DeYoung. And again, different players, different scenarios. He, this guy was former MVP. I don't think Bellinger's fixable. So I don't think Bellinger should be the guy that you would say, you know what, we'll go all in on a pitcher. We'll go get one of those one year, let's just pray it works. And that's the guy that's going to protect Goldie Arnato. To me, that's how you end up going to, you know, we're looking at the team in June or July and going, man, they really failed in the offseason because they didn't find that protection for Goldie Arnato. And now this team isn't the same as they were last year. So I, I would push back against that. If you're going to get a starting pitcher, you still have to find a way to find somebody that can protect Goldie Arnato. And by doing so, I don't think you can because you're using most of your assets or your 
money that's available to go throw it all in on your starting pitching. And I just think that's the wrong approach. Okay. I, I've kind of changed my tune on that, though. Sorry, BK, because sure. I, I was on the same way as, as you, T-Bone, saying, like, you need offense. But if you're going to go get an ace, you're obviously switching your mindset, saying, yeah, as much as we're concerned about protecting Goldie and Arenado, we're going to back what you've said, BK, where if those two guys falter, we're going to lose. But sure. at least we know our pitching's going to carry us through the season. So I actually wouldn't mind doing this for DeGrom. And the reason why is because I, I think if you were to add DeGrom, you probably are trading, I, I would think, Montgomery, and that's $11 million. So let's say DeGrom gets 40 and it's a three-year deal. Three years, $120 million is what you're spending on him. Now, it's super fragile. Don't get me wrong. I, I understand that this is a very risky thing to do because now you're putting your hopes on a, a solid rotation on the backs of DeGrom. Flaherty, both of whom have serious injury questions. Adam Wainwright, who is over the age of 40, and you're betting on him continuing to be the guy that he was previously. That's just, and oh, by the way, Stephen Matz, who's also coming back from some injuries of his own. That is a very fragile rotation, but the upside is really high on that rotation if you go that route. And then you have Miles Michaelis as well, who has some injury questions of his own. The upside of that could be one of the best rotations in all of Major League Baseball. So I get why you would go that route. The thing that I would also say about this scenario is you would then just be betting on your internal numbers. You're making a bet that one of Walker, Gorman, depending on who you still have after making a deal for your catcher, Newt Bar, Carlson, O'Neal, maybe it ends up Burleson is in this conversation as well. Like one of these guys, maybe two of them, hit at a really high level. And then if you go out there and also add one of the left-handed bats that's looking for a bounce-back season, they also hit at a really high level. If you get that and the numbers work out in your direction, there's a lot of ifs here, you could be one of the best teams in the National League next year. And you could have a real shot to be able to win a World Series on the backs of your rotation and the upside play that you had on offense. It's risky. It takes on way more risk than just going out there and signing one of the shortstops or going the other route, which is trade for a catcher and then kind of supplement your roster elsewhere with cheaper deals. But I see the appeal. I really do understand why people are suggesting the Cardinals should go out there and get one of these number one guys. Here's see, the other thing that you're not talking about in that too, is what you're giving up for Sean Murphy. He's going to be the most expensive catcher you're trading for. And your offense is taking a hit depending on who you're trading to acquire. Sean it's Murphy. Gorman, Graceffo and another minor, a lower level prospect. Yeah. So, I mean, you're t- to me, you're taking out a guy that you're unsure about and you're adding a guy who's a certainty, so that's good there. And then you're bringing in Cody Bellinger, who's an uncertainty. So I just think it's going to be more than that for Sean Murphy. To me, to me that this, that's all too risky because how many teams and, – and look, you have to have good pitching in the postseason. I, I, don't, I don't discount that at all. I, I know you have to have good pitching in the postseason. But how many teams are built through a full regular season and on a full postseason run that you look at and go, how come they won the World Series? Because they're starting rotation. Like, maybe two teams in recent memory. I remember the Nationals were Washington, that way. But then we saw how fragile that was right yeah. afterwards. It crumbled. And I, I think you can make an argument for Houston this year. I think Houston's rotation was a big part of that. But really, their offense was loaded, too. Like, now their bullpen was loaded, too. They were just a completely all-around really good team. There's only one team I can remember in recent history where I went, the rotation's the reason they won a World Series. And even then, the Nationals had Juan Soto, Anthony Rendon, and I think there's somebody else I'm forgetting that was on that squad that was pretty they good. They had one guy going through a crazy run. Uh, I can't remember who it was at was the time. Murphy at the time, maybe? Daniel Murphy? That may not be Might right. Maybe when he was with the Mets. But my point is, 
that's only one team that I can remember in recent history. Maybe there's someone I'm forgetting. Every team has one starter that you can point to and you can go, yeah, that's the guy that took the ball and he's the reason that they got to this point because they have an ace and they had really good pitching when they're two and three. No teams really are built on, yeah, they've got five-man starting pitching unit that stays healthy for a full year, and that's the reason we're winning baseball games. It just doesn't happen that often. And that's why I would push back on this approach and go, look, I understand the taking the gamble on the, you know, hopefully our internal numbers are right and our projections are right and these guys end up hitting their ceiling. It, it feels like I'm waiting for that last card in, in a poker game, and I just need that one card to land for me to win. Very low odds, in my opinion, and that's how I view it. I, to me, I want more certainty. Howie Kendrick was the one that, that stood, yeah, up, for, stood up for them. And by the way, they also had Trey Turner at the time as well. That's so right. it, it wasn't exclusively pitching, but we all know it, it was on the backs of their starters. That's how they won it. I think I would more be more likely to go into the relief market and just say, instead of signing one starter, one of Rodon or DeGrom, I'd be more likely to sign three of the high-end relievers in this upcoming offseason. Now, I probably wouldn't do that. I would probably just get two of them, and then I would use the remaining money on a bat to be able to supplement the offense. But I would be more likely to go the relief option than I would be to go the starting option, given what you already have internally. I think their rotation, as currently constructed, is fine. It's pretty good. And you have the potential to have a dominant bullpen, depending on what happens with some of your young guys this year coming up to the big leagues by the end of the season. Like a Graceffo could absolutely factor into their bullpen. Liberator could absolutely factor into their bullpen. And if you get some of these pieces that hit the right way internally, you're looking really good if you add a couple more pieces to that bullpen. And if you switch the conversation of how many rotations have won a World Series to how many bullpens have won a World Series in recent years, it... It is heavily weighed in favor of the bullpen being yeah. the dominant force that drives these teams to the World Series. So that's that would be the side that I would personally side on, even though I understand their history of signing these high-end relievers has been less than ideal, to say the least. Coming up in 15 minutes, we're talking to Chris Kerber, the voice of the Blues. But next, some NFL quick hitters, including... Is Jalen Hurts right now the most trustworthy quarterback in the NFC? And what does Tom Brady's future hold? It sure seems to include football. Will it be in Tampa? We'll talk about that next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kylie. It's BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. Time for some NFL quick hitters. Let's start with this. I saw this yesterday on Get Up, Alex. They were talking about the NFC quarterback situation. One of the hosts said something that struck me. Said, right now, if we're going through all of the quarterbacks in the NFC, the one that I trust the most in a playoff game is Jalen Hurts. Do you agree with that? Would Jalen Hurts be at the top of your list among the quarterbacks in the NFC that you trust going into the playoffs? I think so. Because Kirk Cousins is an obvious no. Dak Prescott? He's the one that I think you could make an argument for over him. Yeah, probably. I think that's the only one, though, honestly. Honestly, I don't even know if I could put my faith in Jalen Hurts also because, like, you just haven't seen it on the big stage there. So I I would probably say as this season stands, it would probably be Jalen Hurts 1A, but Dak Prescott right behind them or right behind him. But I guess that just goes to show you how awful this NFC is this season because I don't know if there's somebody I trust in the playoffs. See, I and I know this is going to sound weird, and I know I'm probably going to get blasted for this. It's okay. 
I would still trust Tom Brady ahead of Jalen Hurts, and I know that team's bad. Well, he's not going to get in the playoffs. Oh, he'll make yeah, the playoffs. I don't, that division I don't know. stinks. I I trust Tom Brady in a playoff scenario. If I need a two minute drive, what quarterback would I want in the NFC? I would take Tom Brady, and I I understand that that team is bad. I'm not sure that that's a Tom Brady issue. Has Brady been great? No, but he's still good. And I I think I would trust Tom Brady if need be over Jalen Hurts and over Dak Prescott. I'm not saying that their schedule is tough down the stretch, but we also have to factor in who they are as a team when when we're talking about who they're going up against because so far they've lost against Pittsburgh and Carolina. They've got New Orleans this week. New Orleans has given them some issues in recent seasons with Tom Brady as the quarterback. Then they've got San Francisco and Cincinnati. They could easily go 0-3 in those games. And if they do, they're sitting at 5-9 and with three games left on their schedule, two of which are on the road at Arizona, at Atlanta, and then Carolina, who also beat them earlier this season. I don't know that they're making the playoffs for sure, man. I would say it's 50-50 at best right now. The only reason they're even in the conversation is because of their division, as you mentioned. But... What do you think it's going to take to win that division? Seven, eight wins? Is that right? Probably. Eight, probably? I'm looking at the Falcons' schedule. So they're home against the Steelers. Steelers are favored in that game. Uh, Then you got the at the Saints, at the Ravens, home against the Cardinals, home against the Bucks. I mean, it probably will come down to that Bucks game. I think so. And I don't. I think your wins. Could the Panthers get in? No, they're too bad. Yeah, but they're too bad. But if they play well the rest of the way, they might. They can't play well because they're too Pittsburgh, bad. Pittsburgh, Detroit, and New Orleans. That would get them to seven if they win all three of those games. Now, betting on them to win all three is a, a sucker's bet. Those are, would be some good odds on the parlay. And then they would have to either beat Tampa in Tampa or beat Seattle in Seattle. I, I think it's hard to see them going that route, but I think it gets it's eight. I think you got to get to eight. And I think it's going to come down to that last game against the Falcons. I think you're right. It'll probably be primetime Sunday night football. That's going to be crazy. Good thing it's not Kirk Cousins playing in that one. Otherwise, they'd lose. I think right now it would still go Dak. I think he would probably be my pick. But he has not played as well this year as I expected him to. It's, it's, I'm a Dak guy. I love him. I think he's a really good quarterback. But it, it has not gone as expected. Next thing up here as we go through some NFL quick hitters. There was a report earlier today. We discussed this briefly earlier on Tom Brady's future The Athletic doesn't believe that it's going to be in Tampa Bay. Jeff Howe is the reporter on this story. He said, what are the uh, quarterback carousel going to look like in the offseason? Brady is going to be a free agent. And guys, they listed four different teams as possibilities if he does end up leaving Tampa Bay. The Patriots were one. The Titans were another. The Raiders were the third. And the San Francisco 49ers were the fourth. If you were Tom Brady and you got to pick your next team, which of those would you be most likely to join? Ooh, man, I think I think it would probably be San Francisco one because of the weapons that you have and two would be New England. But man, internally, I'm kind of arguing with myself that Las Vegas would probably make sense. You get Devontae Adams. You're back with the coach that you loved in New England with Josh McDaniels. You get the offensive mindset like that team needs a couple of pieces and you might be competitive. So I think those I think I would still go San Francisco one, New England two, Vegas three, but I could hear the argument of Vegas being number two. See, I I would definitely go San Francisco one because even if he ends up being bad, like he looks like Peyton Manning did his final year, that roster has enough talent on it to carry him like the Broncos did with Peyton Manning. So San Francisco's definitely one. I, I don't know two. <laughs> I See? two like there's such a drop off in my opinion on what two could be. I 
New England to me just, I don't know if I'd want to go back there. I don't see weapons on that roster to where if I'm Tom Brady that I would want to go back. It would feel like to me like his last year in New England where like the reason people would be excited about New England is because of Tom Brady and because they got decent defense. The weapons around wouldn't be good. So I would put New England three. I would probably put Vegas at two. But even them, like I don't know what they're truly going to do in the offseason. Like I could see them selling Devontae Adams. I could see them trying to quickly blow this thing back up i know they said they're going to stick with mcdaniels but it sounds like that's just a money thing not a faith in the head coach thing i feel like if the patriots are going to make a switch at quarterback this offseason and they're having a homecoming i think it's jimmy garoppolo he's the one that to me makes more sense for them it's a long-term play you could potentially bring him in hope to build their weapons around him over the next few years he's the guy that i think makes more sense for the patriots than tom brady does i just don't see the fit really i'm with you I i think that they don't have enough weapons to make it work I think Vegas and San Francisco are the two that make the most sense. If A.J. Brown was still in Tennessee, I could totally see Tennessee. Mike Vrabel's yeah. a guy that he's familiar with. It's a really good roster. Vrabel is an excellent head coach. He trusts him. I just don't think they have the weapons. If Traylon Burke showed more this year, he's shown well in recent weeks, but he's been hurt most of the season. They would have to get a significant improvement at wide receiver. If, if Brady went to Tennessee, I don't know if they'd do it or not, but... That goes back to the what do the Raiders do? Because we saw reports, was it two weeks ago, a week ago, that they may look to move cars, contracts easier to move. And if that's the case, Adams might hit the trade market again. There you go. That makes a lot of sense. Tennessee, you bring in Brady. Hey, and you get Adams. Ad, they, Raiders are blowing it up. We'll go get Devontae Adams, bring him in here. You to know what else would make a lot of sense? I don't know what the Rams' plan is. I would call the Rams about Cooper, Cooper Cup. If they're truly blowing it up, meaning like he goes to New England and you call... For well, Cooper either, Cup wherever Tom Brady ends up. I can't think of a wide receiver in the NFL that fits better with what yeah. Tom Brady does Wes than Welker-esque. Cooper Cup. Like he's he's perfect. He wins across the middle the way that Julian Edelman did with him for ten years. Those guys made all of their money that way. Why so, not both? Sure. Like if I was the Raiders, that would be the call that I would be making. Say we've got Devontae Adams. We're gonna trade for Cooper Cup. Let's run this for the next two years. See what it looks like, Tom. See, if I'm New England, I'm doing that. I'm going to get him back and then say, don't worry, Tom. We'll get you weapons. To me, it doesn't scream Bill Belichick. I, I don't agree. know why. I, it just doesn't. It doesn't feel like Belichick would be willing you to part with that many You know what does scream Bill Belichick? Jimmy Garoppolo. Winning yeah. championships. Touche. Last thing here before we get to Chris Kerber on the other side here on Cheated. 101 ESPN. The other quarterback that they mentioned in the quarterback carousel for the upcoming season is Lamar Jackson. We forget, but he's technically on a contract year this year. They could franchise him, but if he said, you know what, you guys have been telling me for years that you're going to surround me with talent. There are no wide receivers right now. Demarcus Robinson is my number one guy. This is not good enough. I need to go elsewhere. It's possible that that happens. I don't expect it, but it's possible. If Lamar forced his way out of Baltimore, again, this is a hypothetical world. I don't think it's going to happen. Who do you think makes the most sense for Lamar Jackson? Where would you want to see him go? Because they list a lot of teams. The Jets, Colts, Steelers, Texans, Giants, Commanders, Falcons, Lions, Panthers, and Saints. Honestly. Potential landing spots. The team for me is the Giants. I would love to see him in New York. One of of either the Giants or the Jets. I think I prefer the Jets, honestly. Brian Dable, though, with that type of quarterback. Yeah, I, I think that would make the most sense. The reason I like the Jets more is because of the weapons. I think the Giants is a very similar situation to what he has right now. Better coaching offensively, but similar in terms of the weaponry. Yeah, The Jets have really good receivers. They just don't have a quarterback. I, I like both New York. I New Orleans would be interesting because they've got some weapons. The team that I would throw out here because, I mean, if we're going to connect them to Tom Brady and if Lamar were to force his way out, 
San Francisco, go make a run at him. Oh, good call. You bring in Lamar, you've got Christian McCaffrey. I mean, Debo you're talking Samuel. about a hell of an offense. My like, God. That I, would be amazing. In fact, that's one of those where you can trade Trey Lance. Like, he can be a part of the package plus some first-round picks. That's what I would do. Now, granted, if I'm Baltimore, I'd go, yeah, okay, you can retire for two years. We're going to franchise <laughs> yeah. you. You're not going anywhere. Um, yeah, I'm not allowing that. If I'm the Lions, I'm making that call. What? Jared Goff, man. They've got two first-round picks this year. I think one of them Jared is probably going to be in the top three. If you're the if you're the Lions, why don't you just trade Goff back to the Rams and get Stafford? I mean, I, if I'm the Lions, I've got the weaponry now. My Same. offense looks really good. I'm trying to make a play for one of these stud quarterbacks that could be available this offseason. Say with me. Matt Ryan, Detroit Lions. <laughs> <laughs> That's the stud, huh? Ryan Coming to up the in Lions. 15 minutes. Wins. God. <laughs> Let the BK and Ferrario rewind. I sense. thought we were going to make it one day without a dad joke. Chris Kerber's next. We're right back to the BK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. It's time for Curbside. He shoots, they score! With the voice of the blues, Chris Kerber. They by Randall's, St. Louis's number one liquor store. Visit shoprandalls.com. Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. Let's go out to the Brown and Crippen Celebrity Line to be joined by the voice of the Blues. He's Chris Kerber joining us here on the show. Kerbs, we appreciate the time. How you doing today, man? Fellas, I'm good. How are you? Uh, doing very well. Let's talk about the Blues because uh, the game on Monday was frustrating. Um, I, it, there are some diverging opinions on how well the Blues played in that game. It seemed like the team left the game thinking, ah, we, we played okay, although the score didn't indicate that. How did you assess their game on Monday night against the Dallas Stars? I thought they had a really good first period. I thought they had a, a, a decent second period. And then when the Dallas Stars scored their goal, I, re- I was real curious to see how the team responded. I was curious to see if we'd see the fragile response that we've seen a good chunk this season or if we would see the third period Florida response. And I think, unfortunately, in the third period, we saw the fragile response. And that that's the concerning and the alarming part to me. So uh, it just told me that the team isn't quite it, it isn't quite confident in that style of play that they need to be playing just yet. Curbs, do you feel like that there's an issue defensively with this team? Well, I, I think there is, but I think you've got to be careful in how you – like that, it's a bit of a loaded word because one might think that you're talking just about the players whose position is defenseman, or even a goaltender for that matter. I think there's defensive issues with this team, Alex, but I think it's because, well, I think there's probably two. One, they're not getting enough offensive zone time. So you could take a team that's, you know, even has a Norris Trophy winner on it. And when you ask them to defend in their own zone as much as the Blues are having to defend in their own zone, you're going to see more chances given up. So, to me, it's it's not about so much the defenseman as it is. I don't think the style of play is leading to enough offensive zone time or a good enough play of stopping the other team's transition in the neutral zone 
that's causing the problem. So to me, that's as much on forwards as it is as it is defensemen. Now, having said that, I I, I don't think the defensemen as a group have been as good individually as they need to be, which makes them better as a team. I, I, I think there's room for improvement across the board in that front, but. I'm looking more at the team defensive game as a style of play than I am looking at there's a problem of them missing one guy here or one guy there, is, if that makes any sense. It does. Is part of that issue curbs the the inability to hit the net? Because I know Doug Armstrong mentioned that when they were in the midst of that eight-game losing streak and talked about how we're trying to figure out why this team struggles to hit the net so much. And one of the bigger examples the other night was Shen missing the net and it rimmed around the board and it was the odd man rushed the other way. Well, or or look at what proved to be the massive back-breaking goal in that game was Mikola going to take the shot. It's blocked by the player right in front of him. They come down the ice, and, and, and Robertson scores a goal. And when Robertson, who's been on fire all season, really hadn't done anything all game, the, the Blues defensively had done a terrific job. Ron O'Reilly's line did a terrific job against him. But So, yeah, I, I, I think getting the shots on net is, is part of it. I think uh, also getting to the front of the net – and creating a little more havoc. I, I thought they had some decent chances. And look, you, you can only, you're 22 games in. You, you can you can tell, you can only use the quote. Well, we're getting chances so many times before you have to start saying why aren't the chances going in or what has to still change? Because chances don't win games. Goals win games. And so to me, it's a positive that you're getting the chances. But are those chances leading to a second chance, a third chance? Are those chances leading to regaining possession in the offensive zone? adding more pressure on, maybe you're breaking down the other team defensively and they take a penalty, or maybe you're able to make a change in the offensive zone that leads to a goal. One chance to me with this team is not turning into three or four within the same sequence. And so whether that is regaining the puck off a rebound, I, we, I don't think they clearly didn't get to the middle of the ice enough in that last game, or if it is just hitting the net more, getting more puck freezes in the offensive zone, that leads maybe to some more face-off draws that you win, whatever the sequence may be, there needs to be more of a concerted play style in that offensive zone. Now, here's the thing, and I said this briefly at the end of the game because I was quite brief, Alex, at the end of the game. <laughs> but uh, It was a 50-second post-game report. I respect hey, that, Curbs. Yes, well, there I listened to those the next day, and this one was easy to load. <laughs> there was... Well, that listen, every now and then there's probably just a two or three times over the course of the year where it's better to just turn things over to the next guy. Right? <laughs> and what, that's exactly what I did, and I wished, I wished Alex and Joe good luck as I left the booth. But the um, uh, no, but, but here's the thing. I, I, here, I really do believe that, that this, is, this is the picture right now. I believe the St. Louis Blues – can be doing what the Boston Bruins are doing. I believe the Blues are getting better goaltending from Jordan Bennington than the Boston Bruins are getting. I look at the the players that the Blues have on defense, and I'm thinking, okay, you, there's there's clearly greatness there, in my opinion. What I don't see with this team is the team taking over the team. What I don't see with this team is them looking down the bench at each other and just saying, we know what we have to do, let's do it. There still seems to be too much of, you know, a a great shift like, you know, the Ryan O'Reilly line provided in the Florida game that led to everybody's following that style. 
there's one shift where you'll see that, and then it's an east-west shift, the next one, and then the third shift has to defend. Um, I, I think you really need to see just the team grab a hold of themselves and playing as a unit of five. It is very clear in the Winnipeg game, in the Edmonton game, and they'll come back in Florida, right? It's very clear. Frankly, I thought they played a really good game in Boston for the most part. It's clear in those games the style of play that you need to play as a team. You just don't have enough guys buying in to play that for 60 minutes and want to try different things, and that fractures the team game. And so to me, it, it's not coaching. Uh, it, it, to me, this really comes down to the players themselves deciding whether or not they're going to get on board and play a style. Curbs, the final question that I've got for the voice of the Blues, Chris Kerber, who joins us each and every Wednesday at one thirty, right here on 101 ESPN. I wanted to ask you about Tory Krug because I, I, I want to say this on the front end. I think sometimes, a lot of the time, fans and media alike will focus too much on any one individual, right? Early in the season, it was all on Jordan Kyrou. He was the problem. No, it wasn't just Jordan Kyrou. The whole team wasn't playing well. And I, I wanted to preface this question by saying that because I don't think that it is all Tory Krug's fault. I am curious, though, because his time on ice has gone down significantly over the last two games. He's been playing closer to like 13 minutes at even strength each of the last two games. In the last one, that was basically the same as Callie Rosen. He was like sixth on on the team among defensemen in time on ice at even strength. Is, is something up there in your opinion, or what have you made of, of Tory Krug's recent decline in ice time? Well, what, what I've learned over the years is the first thing, and, and I haven't done this yet, so I wish I could give you a better answer on that, Brandon, but um, we, we know he missed a couple of games due to some injuries, and we saw him go into the corner on that one game and kind of grab. I thought it was his left arm. So I don't know. I don't know what the injury situation is that could be limiting certain amount of play, right? And and a quick anecdote. I'll give you. Like go back to last year. Somebody might have said uh, Braden Shen doesn't look like the same player banging for the puck in the corner, and yet we find out he was dealing with cracked ribs, right? So I don't. I don't know if there is an injury situation here. I do know more specifically to the last two games. I think you saw some ice time levels down a little bit also because you were dressing an extra defenseman. So that plays a little bit of a role in it. But Kurt the, the one thing about, played more ice time than he did. Yeah, well, that's where I was just about to go with this. The one thing that I have noticed in the last couple of games is the increased ice time in Nico Mikola. And I think I and I think that's give Mikola some credit on that is he's earned some of that ice time and that extra ability there. I think also we haven't seen it, you know, um, and, and some of that may be penalty killing for, for Mikola as well. But, um, look, it, that's why I said in that previous comment, I think to a man, you know, maybe not just in fault, but I think even he would say it to him. I think to a man, every defenseman on this team could be playing better. Um, I, I got to think, you know, I look back at that Florida game and Tory Krug was minus two. At that point, he had been minus eight over the previous three games, including that period. And then he had a snapping moment. He got into the fight. His game turned around. He held, he got the two assists in the game. And and I think it comes down to, again, just individually every guy playing better. I, yeah, without a doubt, his level of play could go up, needs to be picked up. You know, I also think maybe this is one of those, do you start to see Tory Krug coming out for more of the offensive zone draws and used strategically for that. The defensive zone draws go the way of Mikola or something like that. I, I think that's all part of this maybe process of this year. But, um, yeah, I, I, I don't think – listen, 
Level of play, yes, that is definitely a factor in why the ice time has gone down. Mikola picking his play up, that's a factor as well. But I, I agree with your initial statement, too. I think across the board, just about every one of the defensemen can look at that and say there's got to be something better. As to why maybe his play has dropped, I, I haven't had a chance to talk to him or Mike Van Ryan about that to give you a much better answer. That's fair. Curbs, we appreciate the time as always, man. Thanks so much for hopping on with us today. Enjoy the game tomorrow night against Carolina. It sounds like we're going to get to see Robert Thomas back in the lineup, which is uh, certainly a welcomed return for him. We'll talk with you again next week. Yeah, it'll be great to see him back, guys. Uh, great job, and we'll, we'll, we'll talk to you again uh, next Wednesday. Absolutely. That's Chris Kerber, the voice of the Blues, here on 101 ESPN. Always appreciate his time here with us. We will hit the BK and Ferrario Rewind coming up next. We're right back to the BK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. Hey, starting tomorrow, join the holiday spirit by supporting this year's 12 Days T-shirts. It's hosted by the Fastlane and 101 ESPN. If you donate $25 online between the 1st and the 12th to support the Little Bit Foundation, you're going to receive your choice of either a Rivers or Thompson 101 ESPN jersey as a gift for your donation. Make a donation starting tomorrow during the Fastlane's 12 Days of T-shirts at 101ESPN.com. Huge thanks to McBride Holmes for making this possible. All right, we're going to end the show today where we began the show, which is a recap of the Ken Rosenthal piece. He talked to John Mozeliak, who said that the number one priority this offseason is adding an everyday catcher. We knew that to be true. That was the expectation. He then was asked about the possibility of adding a shortstop, and John Mozeliak said, quote, Tommy Edmond is a very, very good shortstop, end quote, adding that it is doubtful that they would strike a bargain in free agency or in a trade, but maybe there is a change in the marketplace that could prompt them to adjust with their approach at shortstop. In other words, this is the same approach they had last year to the shortstop market. Alex, at this point in time, given everything that we know about the market, John Mosellock's comments, everything like that, do you think that they are completely out on the shortstop market? Yeah, it's over, ladies and gentlemen. It's over, especially now, because I, I still held out hope that maybe Xander Bogarts's market would fall a little bit and John Mosellock would swoop in and kind of win the offseason, but it doesn't sound like that's taken place. You'd have to get into a competitive conversation with Xander Bogarts because other teams are talking. Yeah, I think it's over. I think you know where Turner's going. I think you have an idea where Carlos Correa's going. And then it really comes down to, do you want Dansby Swanson or do you want to just stick with what you got? Yep. And ladies and gentlemen, they are sticking with what they've got. Earlier today, we'll do this real quick before we hand things over to the fast lane. Randy Carricker gave his projection on what he thinks an ideal offseason will look like for the Cardinals. Basically said, add a front-end starter, add Cody Bellinger, add... Who was I missing? Sean Murphy. Here? Sean, Murphy. For Sean Murphy. That's their moves. For you, Alex, given what we know, what's your ideal offseason? Don't include a shortstop because we know it's not likely. Yeah, I, I think my ideal offseason, rather than Cody Bellinger, it would be signing Michael Conforto. Um, it would be trading for one of these catchers. I mean, I don't like the idea of Sean Murphy. I like the idea of Alejandro Kirk. Um, and then it, I don't even think it would be getting one of those high-end starting pitching. I think it would probably be signing a Kenley Jansen or a Craig Kimbrell. That Maybe would both. be that would sure that would be an ideal offseason for me. Damn, that's really uh, 
That's a bold prediction there. Yeah, why not both? You get both of them? Yeah, I like it. I, why not? I, I think that's what they'll do. I think they'll get a catcher. I'm not sure who. I, I like Kirk as well over those other guys. Um, and then I would think that you look I, – I think they're still in the market for a left-handed bat. It's probably someone that's Ben Gamble-esque, which is sad to say. Uh, and then I don't think they're in on the starting pitching market. I think they look at the bullpen. I think they look to add – I think they'll only do one, but I think if someone else kind of falls through the crack and they go, oh, okay, we could go at him for $5 million, then they add two. That's I my think guess. I'm in on Jansen for – this is not my ideal world, but just for – the hypothetical scenario. Goggles. Jansen coming here. We're getting rid of Paul DeYoung. Lars Newpar's going in the trade for Jansen. They end up adding two of those high-end arms. Maybe it is the two that you mentioned, Alex, uh, as bullpen additions. What a sexy offseason. And then you get, like, uh, Michael Brantley as a left-handed option for you as a DH and in the outfield, and you just run it back. In all reality, Christian Vasquez, Ben Gamble. Uh, Adam Adovino, and call it a day, ladies and gentlemen. Sounds good to me. That's Alex Ferrario. He's Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kiley. That offseason sounded awful, but it sounds realistic. <laughs> we'll talk about that tomorrow here on 101 ESPN. You've been listening to the BK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN.